2: Good morning everyone, very glad you're with us. It is a Friday, but there is so much news impacting the heartland, especially a lot of big news to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Friday, September 15th. Auto workers on strike, union workers for the United Auto Workers, hit the picket lines in three states after their contract expired at midnight.
3: And Hunter Biden indicted on federal gun charges after his plea deal fell apart. He's facing three charges, including possession of a firearm and making false statements. Also, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dropping the F-bomb while staring down another revolt from inside his own party. as The clock ticks down to a potential government shutdown.
2: Also, CNN is the first American network on the ground in Libya after deadly flooding has left thousands dead. The United Nations says most of those deaths could have been avoided.
3: And we're tracking Hurricane Lee. It's expected to make landfall near Maine this weekend. Starting today, coastal New England is bracing for heavy rain, high winds, and flooding. CNN This Morning starts right now.
2: So this is our big headline this morning. Uh, We have been talking about the fact that this may come. The White House did not expect it, but it happened. Breaking overnight for the first time in history, auto workers now on strike against not one, not two, but all of Detroit's big three automakers at the same time after the companies failed to reach a deal with the union by midnight. More than 12,000 workers have already walked off the job in three targeted strikes at plants in Michigan, Ohio and Missouri. The United Auto Workers Union president tells CNN even more plants will join this strike if their demands for better wages and benefits are not met. He says workers have not received their fair share of record profits, while CEOs have gotten huge raises.
4: You heard the CEO of Ford say that it would bankrupt them if they
5: met your demands. What do you think of that? I think it's a joke. They could double our wages. And they could not raise the price of vehicles, and they would still make billions of dollars. It's a lie like everything else that comes out of their mouth.
4: Are more facilities going on strike?
5: If they don't, if they don't take care of our members,
3: they will. Now, The repercussions here are not just between the union and the big three automakers. According to analysts, a 10 day strike against those three automakers could cost the U.S. economy more than $5 billion. We have team coverage this morning on this Very consequential breaking news. We're going to talk to a member of the union. Rahel Solomon is with us. She'll break down the economic impact. Arlette Sines has reaction from the White House. But we want to start with CNN Business and Politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich, who's been covering this every step of the way live outside the Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan. Vanessa, you're around the employees, you're around the union workers. What's the feeling among them now that this is very real?
6: Yeah, a historic day for the auto industry and a historic day for these workers. Uh, many of them who did not know if they were going to be on strike today, but at 12 midnight, The word was given there will be a strike against the big three. We are here outside the Ford, Michigan plant in uh, Wayne, Michigan. And I want to bring you into the conversation with Austin Johnson. He has been with Ford for two years now. He's been here since midnight, since the first moment of the strike. You know what the union is asking for. You know why you are on strike tonight.
3: Do you support that? Of course. I support everything the union is doing for me, and I'll be out here as long as I have to be, so.
6: One of the big key components is wages, cost of living. They wanna make sure that sure they preserve jobs in the EV transition. For you personally, what is the biggest issue you wanna see resolved?
3: Um, probably the tier wages, the tier gaps. So I'm a tier two right now. I'd rather have that for me doing the
7: same job as somebody that's making more than me I would hope to make the same wage as them.
6: This is your first strike. You're 21 years old. What do you think about this movement? It's been so strong. The union has been so resilient in their demands. What are your thoughts about what you're going to be seeing?
5: Um, I'm just glad we're all
3: here. We're all united. And hopefully we come to an agreement. So that's it. And you'll be out here how long? As long as I have to be. That's it.
6: So thank you, Austin. So, guys, listen, from the company's perspective, GM and Stellantis saying that they are disappointed by this strike, that they feel that they put historic offers on the table. Ford saying even they put a new proposal on the table as recent as a couple days ago. And they heard back at 8 p.m. last night uh, with a counter offer from the union. But that offer, according to Ford, was just a slight dip in the 40% wages Mm -hmm. that the union was initially asking for Ford, Poppy, and uh, Phil could not meet those demands. And the union apparently made it very clear to the automaker that unless their demands were met, they were going to strike. And here we are, day one
2: of what is expected to be a strike that may go on for a little while, guys. One of the things, Vanessa, I think is so interesting is that the approach here by the union is, is to maybe strike at more plants without notice. And the head of the union has said, look, that is to give us leverage in these negotiations. So it's three plants today. It could be many more in a few days.
6: Yeah, this is a strategic plan. This is a targeted plan. The union picked these three plants across these three states. Because they are assembly plants and they know that if they take down certain plants across the country, that's going to cause a ripple in the supply chain. So these are all uh, ice engine uh, facilities, not EV facilities, which we've heard so much about. But that could escalate the union using this as a tactic that if they do not feel like they are moving forward with negotiations, they'll strike more targeted plants,
2: which could have an even greater impact on all three automakers, guys. Vanessa, we know you've been working around the clock on this story. Thank you. We'll get back to you soon. Bill.
3: Thanks, Poppy. For weeks, the White House, including administration officials directly to you, Poppy, said this would never happen. They wouldn't get to this point, including Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo on this show just four days ago.
2: We're four days from a potential strike. Is that still the belief of the Biden administration?
8: It is the belief of the Biden administration. No strike. Yep, that's, a, that's where the president is. I want to turn now to
3: Arlette Signs, who's live for us in the North Lawn of the White House. Uh, Arlette, there's the, the kind of public posture and then there's the behind the scenes here, the work that the White House has been trying to do, deputizing Gene Sperling, a top advisor, to try and work on this over the course of now, I believe, several weeks. Uh, talk to me about what the feeling is inside the West Wing, given both the political and economic repercussions here.
9: Yeah, Phil. Well, it's certainly an issue for the White House that they've been watching very closely over the course of the past few months. And President Biden himself had expressed optimism that this would not end in a strike. But now he is waking up this morning, six hours into a United Auto Workers strike, as these negotiations uh, failed to produce a contract. Now, in the final hours, President Biden was engaging with the parties on this issue. They are not. The White House was not direct party to the negotiations, but President Biden did hold hold calls with the. United Auto Workers president, Sean Fain, as well as the leaders of the auto work of the auto companies to try to just check in on the status of these negotiations. You had Gene Sperling, a Michigan native, a top economic advisor to the president uh, acting as a go between bet- uh, between these uh, companies and the uh, UAW as these talks were underway. But one of the focuses right now, while we haven't gotten a direct reaction from the White House since this strike took place, one of their focuses heading into 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 the day. We'll be trying to see if there is a way to blunt any of the economic impacts of this strike. Of course, there are concerns about what this could mean for the supply chain, what this could mean for higher prices. And of course, there is the political challenge to the president as well, who has touted himself as the most pro-union president, someone who is trying to uh, change, improve conditions for these uh, auto auto workers and other uh, unions as well. So this will all be part of the challenge and the calculus for the president heading forward as the strike continues into the day.
3: Yeah, it is a significant issue for the president and his team that they've been working on. They will obviously need to do more work. Arlette, stay with us. Poppy?
2: All right. In Toledo, Ohio, nearly 6,000 workers off the job this morning at a Stellantis plant. Joining us now, one of them, Mark Kidd, a committeeman and a member of the UAW Toledo Local 12. Mark, thank you very much. Look, you guys said this is going to come uh, if you don't meet our demands. The automakers did not meet your demands. Do you think you're going to be on strike for a while?
10: Well, we all hope not, but uh we're all willing to take it as long as it as we have to. What
2: what does that mean? As long as long as we have to. Do they have to meet
10: all of well, the Well until we until we get a fair contract, that's what we're all after out here is uh, uh making sure we get some of the concessions back that we lost back in two thousand
2: nine. Yeah. Yeah, we should we should remind people, um, and, and Phil, we both covered this a lot, that back during the you know financial crisis of 2009 and the bailouts of the automakers, they gave up a lot of things that now, Mark, you guys are trying to get back. This isn't just about wages going up. This is about a lot of concessions that were made over a decade ago.
10: That's correct. Uh, We're talking COLA, uh, pensions. It's across
11: the board.
3: You know, to that point, Mark, the, the contrast between what the UAW leadership did back then in an effort to save Uh, the companies completely versus what Sean Fain, the leader of the UAW has been doing now uh, is very striking. And I think very intentional and comes from that period of time. You're talking about Uh, his leadership, his strategy. uh, What's the feeling about that as this has now become a reality?
10: Oh, the the feeling is great. The the line was drawn in the sand a a long time ago. These companies knew uh, what our intentions were, you know, months ago, uh, if not longer, uh, You know, this is this is the only way we're going to get those things back. The companies came to us uh, or came to the UAW back in 2009 and said, look, we ain't going to make it. So the UAW gave in and, and, you know, gave them all these things on, uh, you know, good faith that someday would come back. And and now these companies are making, uh, you know, record profits. And uh, we're trying to get back the things that we gave up to help them.
3: Hey, Mark, what's the level of concern over the course of the last several months? The big three have been uh, expanding their inventory to some degree in preparation for this? I know you all have an assistance fund uh, that's pretty large that should be able to last for a period of time, uh, but that the automakers are willing to wait you out on this.
10: I, I don't, I can't really touch too much on that. Uh, you know, here in Toledo, we, we build the uh, world iconic Jeep Wrangler. It, it, it never stop selling. So it, it, as long as sales stay up, I don't, I don't see them being able to hold out that long. Uh, but uh, then again, I'm no expert at that kind of stuff.
2: Mark Kidd, we're glad you joined us this morning. Please come back as this develops. Thanks again.
3: All right. We'll do. Thanks.
2: So I should note we're going to be joined by the former CEO of Chrysler, Bob Mardelli, that's coming up next hour.
3: Who was there during the auto bailout. He was. People don't recognize. The genesis of all of this ties back to that. And you can't talk about this without that context. We're going to continue to follow the strike throughout the course of the morning. Also, another first. The Justice Department has indicted the child of a sitting president. What are the next steps for Hunter Biden?
2: This and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy staring down another right-wing revolt. What's driving the infighting within the Republican Party? That's next.
3: Well, it is a moment for history. This morning, Hunter Biden has become the first child of a sitting president to be charged by the Justice Department. That historic indictment comes after his initial plea deal, you'll remember, collapsed when a federal judge raised questions about the details. Hunter Biden is facing three charges over a gun he bought in 2018, a period when he has said he was addicted to crack cocaine. Altogether, he could face up to 25 years in prison. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. And Caitlin, I think the, the first question now that this has happened, what's next? Could there be more charges at this point?
12: Yeah. Well, Phil and Poppy, there is a special counsel overseeing this who is still investigating as far as we know. And what happened here in this case, it's been a really long road for Hunter Biden an investigation that's been going on for five years around him on a number of different fronts, not just what was charged yesterday, but what was charged yesterday, what he's indicted for. It's three charges around a gun uh, that he bought from a dealer, a Colt revolver, in 2018 in Wilmington, Delaware. And the charges are about him certifying to that uh Uh, firearms dealer, that he was not under the influence of any illegal drugs at the time, and he wasn't addicted to any illegal drugs. Now, Hunter Biden has said publicly that he was a drug user around that time. And so what the federal government is doing now, what the Justice Department is doing, is that they're saying that it was false, the statements that he was making as he was trying to obtain this weapon. And then also, uh, he should not have been in possession of the gun. So gun control laws that they are enforcing on the books here. Now, that is only a portion of the Hunter Biden investigation. Much of the investigation for many years has been around possible tax crimes. And uh, he had been planning to go through the court system, plead guilty or have some sort of deal with the Justice Department that fell apart just a few weeks ago. And those deals were about both this gun situation as well as tax crimes. And so now we are waiting to see what happens next for Hunter Biden. Uh, But this now is going to require him to come from California over to Delaware
2: and face these charges. Just sticking on the gun charge for a moment, it was really interesting to hear his defense counsel, Abby Lowell, on with Aaron last night, talking about multiple defenses they're going to put forward. One has to do with the constitutionality now, even, of bringing a charge like this, which Phil and I are especially fascinated by. How are they going to yeah, defend
12: him? It is a fascinating issue in the legal system and politically on how we interpret the Second Amendment and gun control and how often these sorts of of issues are prosecuted. The How much these laws on the books are brought. And so Abby Lowell on uh, with Aaron Burnett last night on CNN, Hunter Biden's defense attorney. Here's what he had to say about all of the different ways they believe they could challenge this case now that it's been charged
7: there'll be three things that people should pay attention to. First, this charge brought today violates the agreement the government made with Hunter Biden. That was a standalone agreement different than this plea. And second, the constitutionality of these charges are very much in doubt. And third, if it got past those two, and we don't think it would, then if there were ever a trial on the facts, we don't think the facts are as your expert today thought them to be. There will be a defense.
12: So Abby Lowell is a lawyer who goes to trial. He's had a history of success in the past in big cases. He does try cases, not like some lawyers that just make deals sometimes. But the things that he wants to challenge here is the fact that Hunter Biden seemed to have an agreement before with the Justice Department that went into court, fell apart. He wants to try and make that happen. And then also
2: these questions around the Second Amendment that the courts are still looking at. Yeah, It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Thanks, Caitlin. Let's go to the White House. Our Correspondent the is back with us. Any reaction from the White House on this? I mean, we've heard the president say in past months, my son did nothing wrong. His son is now indicted this morning. Yeah, well, the White House isn't
9: reacting exactly specifically on the indictment. Instead, they are just referring reporters to the Justice Department, trying to keep this as an independent or arguing it's an independent investigation that they are not going to weigh in on. But this is certainly also a personal matter for President Biden. Back in July, he really felt that there was about to be some relief around the corner as they thought that Hunter Biden was about to wrap up some of the uh, legal sagas that are around him. But then uh, that was uh, delayed after that plea deal fell apart and now his son is facing an indictment. Of course, President Biden is incredibly close with his son, Hunter. He has had him here at the White House, even as some Democrats privately have expressed concern about keeping Hunter so close amid these investigations. But this is also coming just two days after President Biden, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, announced that he was calling for a formal impeachment inquiry into the president, even though the House committees have not turned up any evidence to show any direct ties between President Biden and uh, his son Hunter Biden's business dealings. But this could also be a political problem heading, for, heading into 2024 for the president as Republicans uh, continue to try to put these issues regarding Hunter Biden front and center.
3: Oh, that's science. Thank you very much. I want to turn now from the White House to Capitol Hill, where a dramatic split among House Republicans has all of Congress in a deep freeze. After a fiery three-day return to the Hill from the August recess, House Republicans failed to rally around any government spending bills at all with just over two weeks before a government shutdown. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he's now facing renewed threats to his speakership from those within his own party. House Freedom Caucus Republicans hold up appropriations bills and demand significant cuts, cuts dramatically outside an agreement already reached between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. McCarthy admitting he's, quote, not quite sure what they want as Freedom Caucus members continue to threaten to oust him holding hostage government appropriations, and all as a defense spending bill. Traditionally, the lowest hanging fruit in the chamber spending process couldn't even get to the House floor this week before Republican leaders had to pull it. Now, to be clear, these are not bipartisan bills that would lead to an actual outcome. This was the bare minimum for a majority that they should be able to pass. Not so much. Now, McCarthy says he plans to push forward with a short-term stopgap spending bill to prevent a shutdown despite those Freedom Caucus threats, reportedly daring his far-right colleagues to, quote, Move the effing motion. The key contrast is across the Capitol building, where bipartisan appropriations leaders have shepherded a steady effort to do their work. This week alone, they advanced a three-bill spending package with huge bipartisan votes twice. Now, that's now hung up in procedural issues, but it has been a dramatically different approach. CNN's Lauren Fox has been working behind the scenes covering all this trauma over the course of the last week, and to some degree, years Lauren, there have been meetings behind closed doors between House Republicans trying to figure out a path forward. What are they considering and is that going to work?
13: Yeah, Phil, it's a moving target for all of the reasons that you just outlined. You know, multiple sources that I talked to yesterday were clear that there are some conversations happening between different factions of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives to try to find any consensus on any spending bill to try to move the process forward. Now, what they were eyeing, and it is a moving target once again, yesterday was a short-term CR that included some spending cuts as well as increased border security. The idea was that the Main Street Caucus, which is full of a number of Republicans who come from different parts of the Republican Party, was trying to negotiate with the House Freedom Caucus, obviously some of the most hard Members of the Republican Party, and they were trying to find some consensus, keeping leaders in the loop as to what their negotiations were producing. But they didn't come up with any result as of this moment. And that just gives you a sense of the struggle ahead. And as you noted, this is a fight over trying to find consensus among Republicans in the House. In order to find a ultimate solution, in order to avert a government shutdown, you're going to need a solution with Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. So there are so many moving pieces right now, Phil, and so many members that I talked to on both the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle yesterday said they are getting more and more concerned that a shutdown may almost be unavoidable if negotiations keep going in this direction. So yeah,
3: Lauren, that's such important reporting. You and I have covered these issues on the in the Capitol for so many years. This is different. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. We were talking about it this morning. This is definitely different. It means you're going to be busy the next couple of weeks. Lauren Fox, thank you.
2: Also, we have a lot of new developments this morning in several legal cases against former President Trump. First, in the Georgia election subversion case, the Fulton County judge overseeing it said prosecutors cannot try all 19 defendants together. That means Trump will not be tried next month with two of his lawyers, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough likely wouldn't face trial then until next year. And then moving to the civil fraud case right here in New York, this is a case brought against Trump, his children and the Trump organization by the attorney general of New York, Letitia James. A judge has agreed to an emergency request by Trump's lawyers to put that trial temporarily on hold, and that really raises questions about whether it will begin next month as planned. And then new overnight on the federal level in that federal election interference case, special counsel Jack Smith argued against Trump's request that the judge, Tanya Chuck, can recuse herself He's saying that Trump had taken her comments in the Capitol rioter cases, quote, out of context in order to manufacture allegations of bias. And also, this is really interesting. New overnight, NBC News asked Trump if he had considered pardoning himself in any of the federal cases. Here's what he said
14: Mr. President, if you were reelected, would you pardon yourself?
7: I could have pardoned myself. Do you know what? I was given an option to pardon myself. I could have pardoned myself when I left. People said, would you like to pardon yourself? I had a couple of attorneys that said, you can do it if you want. Uh, I had some people that said it would look bad if you do it, because I think it would look terrible. Let me just tell you, I said the last thing I'd ever do is give myself a pardon.
2: A presidential self-pardon is untested, legally experts, very divided on its constitutionality. Phil.
3: Well, we're now probably six hours into the United Auto Worker Union's Historic strike against all three of the big three automakers. Rahel Solomon is standing by with how this could impact the economy and you at home. And right now, tropical storm warnings are in effect for New England as Hurricane Lee creeps toward the East Coast. Our weather team has the latest on this system. That's next. Stay with us.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by
1: Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So really a historic morning in America. For the first time ever, the United Auto Workers Union is on strike against all three of the big U.S. automakers at the same time. This comes as contract negotiations with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis are deadlocked. The current contracts expired at midnight, and this is a targeted strike. So that means right now 13,000 auto workers, or less than about 9% of the union are striking. But the union is threatening to expand that strike without notice if their demands are not met. The two sides presenting very different accounts of what has happened in these negotiations. Listen.
15: On August 29th, we made our first offer almost two weeks ago to the UAW. We've made three offers since then. And we've had no genuine counteroffer on any of those. Um, In fact, we were so concerned about the lack of feedback that Bill and I decided to make the last offer this Tuesday personally. And when we walked in the door, we found that Sean Fain wasn't there.
5: Let's talk about what good faith is. They've had our economic demands for six weeks. We've told them from day one, We expect a bargain now, not wait till the end. They waited till last week. We had to file unfair labor practice charges on two companies to get them to come to the table. So they waited till the last week to want to get down to business. Shame on them. And what they're saying is complete BS.
2: So what does this mean for you? How does this affect the broader economy? Let's bring in CNN anchor and correspondent Rahal Solomon. That's the key question.
14: It really is. And the answer will really depend on duration, how long this strike really lasts. So we heard Phil at the top of the show talk about this estimate of $5.6 billion provided by Anderson. That would be for a 10-day strike. And this includes things like lost pay, the losses to manufacturers, but also suppliers, Full parts. strike, though, all the workers. You know, I, I would have to double-check that on their their analysis because they actually did this before they announced that right. It was going to be three simultaneous. So that's a really good point. But another way to think about it, Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's, I talked to him yesterday, and he said a full strike would be the equivalent of about shaving off 0.2% of a percentage point from GDP. Mm-hmm. He admits that's modest, but meaningful when you think about some of the other head, head, headway issues that we're having, right? So you think about, for example, um, student loan repayments starting again. You think about, for example, uh, oil being back above $90 a barrel. There are sort of a lot of headwinds happening simultaneously. So meaningful. Now, if it feels like there have been more strikes than usual, it's not just your imagination. There have. It, there have been. In fact, so I talked to Art Wheaton and I asked him, you know, what's behind this? He runs the uh, labor program at Cornell and he said, there are a few things and it's not just limited to the U.S. So, chief among them, of course, is high inflation rates, just the higher cost of living. But also, it's a really tight labor market. Workers feel like they have the upper hand. And so they're making these demands. Also, Public support for unions has it's been up, steadily right? increasing, exactly. And then COVID-19 in the sense of people rethinking their work-life balance and whether they're willing to come into the office and that sort of thing. One of the
2: key demands here is about, about a 40% wage hike over yep. a number of years. Um, they point to the increase the CEOs of these companies have right. gotten over that many years. But broader picture, where do auto workers in the union wages compared to other US workers.
14: It's a great point. So if you look this is according to the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So government data, auto workers do actually fall behind the average worker. So you're looking at 2799 mm. on average whereas the average worker is looking at about 3382. So you have to also remember that for these auto workers who took the concessions mm-hmm. because of the the financial issues that some of these automakers were having, you know, this was obviously before inflation, and so uh, that's and impacted as well. key the inflation is a key part of it's this It's a great point. Well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for
2: help very much. Phil?
3: I think the, fast, the numbers are so fascinating and so critical here, and I think people, we've been talking about this, but people are now starting to key in on why this is such a big deal in this moment. Well, also this morning, parts of coastal New England and eastern Canada are bracing for Hurricane Lee. It's now a Category 1 storm, and it's expected to lash the coastal areas with powerful winds, heavy rain, and high surf conditions. Meteorologist Allison Chinchar is tracking this storm. Allison, where do things stand this morning?
16: Right, pretty much the same that they stood last night. We really haven't seen much in the way of changes right now. Sustained winds are 85 miles per hour. It's moving to the north at 16, but it's a large storm in terms of its size. Those tropical storm strength winds extend out from the center, about 300 miles on each side. So again, you're talking in terms of its size, uh, producing some pretty big impacts, even though it technically probably won't make landfall in the U.S. itself, more likely than not going to make landfall into Atlantic Canada. Again, the track still shows shows it kind of pushing up in towards more of the Bay of Fundy region of Canada as we head into the weekend. Rain is still going to be a big factor, however, though, still for portions of the U.S. because of that size, because it's able to be so large in size in terms of winds, also those outer bands. So you are looking at pretty widespread amounts, especially across Maine and New Brunswick, looking at widespread two to four inches. Some spots could pick up five to six, but even areas farther south, say portions of um, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, also looking at a couple inches of rain. And the key there is that for a lot of those states, the ground is already saturated, so it's not going to take much to cause additional flooding. Another concern is going to be the winds. You've got tropical storm warnings up and down for many areas along the coast. That's going to be in combination with those wet, soggy grounds, the potential
2: to bring down some trees and power lines.
3: All right, Allison Chinchark, keep us posted. Everybody definitely watching this heading into the weekend. Thank you.
2: There is new reaction this morning to the Justice Department's indictment of the president's son, Hunter Biden, including from someone who is facing his own legal troubles.
7: It's a sad situation. I mean, nobody should be happy about this.
2: In something this country has never seen before, the Department of Justice has filed criminal charges against the child of a sitting president. Special counsel David Weiss has indicted the president's son, Hunter Biden. This is in connection with a gun he bought in 2018. He is charged with three crimes, two counts for alleged false statements that he made on the form while purchasing that gun, a third count for possessing the gun while they claim addicted to
3: crack cocaine. And this historic indictment comes as congressional Republicans continue to pursue their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And all of this is happening, of course, with the 2024 election on the horizon. Here's what GOP frontrunner Donald Trump had to say about the indictment.
7: It's a sad situation. I mean, nobody should be happy about this.
3: As for Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he also weighed in, saying the indictment is, quote, smokescreen. Don't fall for it. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, CNN political commentator and former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings, and CNN political commentator and attorney Bakari Sellers. Uh, Thank you guys for joining us on a Friday morning. Jennifer, I want to start with you. The... Kind of legal elements of this case, what we've seen from Hunter Biden's defense team, what we've seen in terms of the discussion in the wake of this indictment. Um, do you believe that this case would have been charged to somebody else?
17: These charges that they've used here are virtually never charged. So the answer to that is probably no. Why not? Well, it's just very rare. I mean, you do charge prohibited persons uh, possessing guns frequently. We did it at Southern District of New York with convicted felons, but to charge someone who's an addict, it's hard to prove factually. How do you prove they're an addict? What does it mean to be an addict? You're going to put someone on the stand who used drugs with them? Why is that person going to testify? I mean, there are all sorts of factual issues. And then legally now, in the wake of the Supreme Court's Bruin case, uh, these criminal statutes that prohibit certain people from possessing guns are all in question. Courts around the country have been ruling those unconstitutional. So there's both factual and legal issues. You know, listen, I I hope that what's happened here, they ran out of time on the statute of limitations. It was expiring. They didn't get their deal done. So yes, but you want to give a little bit of a cushion there just in case. So, So that's what happened to precipitate this indictment in the moment. And my hope is that they'll now go back to the negotiating table because this case, as we see from what Donald Trump said even, has zero jury appeal. They do not want to go to trial on this. Juries will hate this case. A guy who, you know, five years ago when he was an addict, now he's clean and sober. He had a gun for 11 days, never loaded, never used. The jury is not going to like that. So they should resolve this. Uh,
2: Bakari, politics in a moment, but but. I think Jennifer brought up something really interesting, and that is that what the Supreme Court did last year in their big guns and Second Amendment case may have changed the whole ballgame here because they changed the bar and the standard and sort of expanded what the sec- how they read the Second Amendment. And that could really help Hunter Biden here.
18: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, that uh, Ms. Rogers actually articulated well the issues with this case and, and especially in light of the Supreme Court ruling. The fact is, I, I actually represented somebody for lying on an application about mm. uh, about a year ago. And the, the difference between that case and Hunter Biden's case is it wasn't because he was an addict, it was because he was out on bond um, for alleged domestic violence and other things. And so that was a different type of issue. And he ended up being sentenced and served. It was a plea deal of 18 months. That was a different set of issues than it is with Hunter Biden. I, I think the problem that Republicans have in trying to lift this up and trying to target Hunter Biden is two things. Um, the first thing is that addiction touches nearly every family in this country. And we know Hunter Biden is an addict and we know these charges are flimsy. And, and I think that most Americans will see through that. The second thing is to charge this president's son uh, with this bad behavior when you know um, individuals like Ivanka Trump and, and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. actually pilfered Washington, D.C., manipulated and grifted their way through D.C. when they were in the White House uh, with no accountability. Oh. I think it rubs people the wrong way. Just, so that's just uh, kind of a, the playing field of where we are today.
2: Okay. Just point of fact, they have, they have not been char- the individuals you just named have not been charged. Oops. Hey, Scott. Crimes.
3: I- the interesting, obviously, Hunter Biden is directly tied to the impeachment inquiry, uh, which is not about the gun charge, uh, but in terms of the ties to his father and what Republicans allege. Uh, I was interested in something for the former president said last night uh, in the snippet of the interview that was released by NBC about kind of the genesis of this impeachment inquiry. Take a listen. I think,
7: had they not done it to me, then I'm very popular in the, you know, they like me and I like them, the Republican Party. Uh, perhaps you wouldn't have it being done to them. And this is going to happen with indictments, too, They have fake indictments. And I think you're going to see that uh, as time goes by. You're going to see uh, Republicans, when they're in power, doing it.
3: A quick correction. That was obviously his interview with Megyn Kelly. There's also an NBC interview as well. But, Scott, to that idea, the idea that this wouldn't have happened if they had not impeached the former president twice uh, when Democrats were in charge... Isn't that kind of undercut the whole theory of the case here as to why they're pushing forward on this inquiry?
11: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're going to go forward with this, which, by the way, I think they should. This is an impeachment inquiry. They're not impeaching uh, Joe Biden yet. And I'm dubious that they ever will, honestly. But this is a sort of a souped up investigation beyond what they've already been doing. And it's an investigation for good reason, I might add. If you're going to move forward, you have to do it underpinned by evidence, by, you know, uh, we turned over every rock. Here are the documents. Here's the narrative. You know, here are the things that prove the narrative that we have. That That's how you win the public opinion fight uh, at the conclusion of an investigation, painting a very clear, you know, equation for the American people, A plus B equals C. The way you lose a public opinion fight would be to say, eh, they did it to me, now we do it to them, and, uh, you know, basically I view politics and government as a mechanism to punish my enemies. That That is, that may thrill some parts of your base. That is not how you're going to win uh, a public opinion fight over this. So, if that becomes the narrative, that'll be a problem for the Republicans if they uh, choose to go down the path of finding actual information and facts and documents, which I think they have so far. Uh, that'll be good for them. But it's really hard for the House Republicans to do that uh, because, as we know, Donald Trump sort of sets the the public opinion narrative of the Republican Party whenever he opens his mouth.
2: Uh, Bakari, step back for the week. It's Friday, and the week for this White House and for President Biden has been a week of a union strike. They said. didn't think it was going to happen, Uh, an impeachment inquiry launched, and now an indictment of the president's son, which has never happened in history. The president hasn't said much, but over the past few months, here is what he has said about his son, Hunter.
19: My son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy of the United States government in rooting out corruption in, in Ukraine. And that's what we should be focusing on. My son's done nothing wrong. I trust him. I have faith in him. And it impacts my presidency by making me feel proud of him.
2: Should the White House, should the president say more now after this indictment? And how do they navigate these three big headwinds?
18: No, I mean, I I think that they're saying everything they should. I mean, my my daughter was still asleep because she sleeps like a teenager, although she's four when I left the house and my son was awake and I kissed him and said, daddy's going to work. I mean, we love our children. I mean, that's what we do. Even even if you're president of the United States, you never wanna see harm come to your children. You never wanna see your children go through this process, whether or not it's politically induced or not, or if your child is an addict. I, I deal with these, these parents and these children every single day, you never want to see them go through this. So you just want to hug them and love them and believe in them. And I think that, uh, you know, above all, I mean, I think a lot of times in this country, we see president of the United States, a United States Senator, and we forget that they're human beings. Even before he's president of the United States, Joe Biden is a husband and a father. And I think he shows that quite often. There, there's nothing more to say. He's not going to interfere in this investigation. I think that the special counsel did what he was supposed to do, knowing there was no deal and the statute of limitations was running. And so here we are. I think a deal will get worked out. But no, uh, you know, Joe Biden doesn't need to meddle. The only thing he needs to do is, is continue to wish and pray for the health and mental health uh, of, of Hunter. And that's all he can do. Makari scott
2: Jen, thank you very sure. much.
3: Well ahead, CNN is the only U.S. network live on the ground in Libya where our crews are witnessing firsthand sheer death and devastation from that catastrophic flooding. Stay with us.
20: It feels like a war zone. It feels like a bomb had gone off here, a big bomb had gone off here. Libyans tell us they're used to war, they're used to death, they're used to loss, but nothing could have prepared them for this.
4: Hours before the floods came, the situation seemed manageable, with local authorities keeping the flooding under control. However, the rupture of the dam caused a huge problem and resulted in a flooding killing many people. It's a tragedy.
2: New this morning, the United Nations says most of the thousands of deaths from this catastrophic flooding in Libya could have been avoided with proper warning and evacuation. Just think about that. They didn't need to happen, is what they're saying. Meantime, relief workers are struggling to bring crucial aid to an area stifled by political divisions, also all the debris on the ground. Doctors Without Borders say 5,000 people have been killed. The International Red Cross says thousands more are missing after a 22-foot wave demolished buildings across the northeast part of that region. CNN is the only network in the U.S. now live on the ground in Libya. And our journalist, Germana Karachi, joins us now. In the hard hit area of Derna. Thank you, Jamana, for being there. You have covered so many tragedies, war zones. Compare this to those. You know, Poppy,
20: uh, our team was just discussing this. We've all covered wars, natural disasters before, but none of us have seen anything like this. I mean, we drove into Derna late last night, uh, and even during nighttime in the dark, you could still see the destruction. And now, during the day, this is just utter, utter destruction. And it really feels like you're walking through a war zone, like massive bombs had gone off here. And this is what people here would tell you. You know, you've got several cities along the Libyan coast that that were impacted by storm Daniel, by the flooding over the weekend. But nothing like this, what people are describing here as this catastrophe. What happened in Darna, of course, as you know, is those two dams that burst. And you have the floodwaters that swept through the whole of the city, washing out entire buildings, neighborhoods, uh, homes, infrastructure, families, and brought it all down here to the sea, to the Mediterranean. I mean, this is just it's very difficult for us to really move the camera around because of the communication issues the communications were disrupted in the city so our connection is not very stable but looking into the sea poppy what we see here is people's lives in there you see homes you see door frames windows furniture clothes cars everything and they are still right now searching Four dead bodies bodies that are still washing up on the shore six days after this tragedy happened right now Libyan officials are saying about 5,000 people have been killed there are still 10,000 people unaccounted for and officials that we've been speaking to say they don't expect to find any more survivors right now and what you've got here where we are all these volunteers Uh, from different parts of the country who are working, who are trying to assist in this recovery effort. And it is such a tough task, they're telling us they're not equipped to deal with something like this. They don't have the means and capabilities to do this. Um, one young man I was speaking to just a short time ago just describing how people were just tying ropes to themselves and holding each other as they would dive into uh, the sea and start pulling out body after body. This one young man told me in one day he pulled 40 bodies uh, just by himself um, and right now The volunteers here are saying, look, they need heavy equipment. You've got cars that are stuck in there And, and they don't know. How many people are still in there? They are worried that there are people still, dead bodies, of course, in these cars, and they want support. They want help. They want heavy equipment. They want divers. They want diving equipment to try and get uh recover as many bodies as they can. They have had some international support. We have seen some uh teams here on the ground. The Turks were already out on a rubber boat just a short time ago. You have helicopters in the air, but it is nowhere near enough, Poppy, to deal with this disaster.
2: And Jaman, I know you can't move the camera. The connection is unstable. But just so you know, our viewers are seeing these devastating images as you're reporting for us on the ground. The fact that they need this heavy equipment, things that would normally come largely from the international community, that is all complicated, is it not? Because the government there in eastern Libya not recognized. So this has been a big concern, Poppy, that aid would be slow to
20: come into this part of Libya. The country obviously divided east and west. This is not uh, an internationally recognized government. Uh, It has been getting some support uh, from members of the international community. But again, people are telling us it is nowhere near enough. But we've heard from aid organizations saying another major obstacle for getting aid and relief into uh, Derna is, The logistics it is the roads trying to get here i mean for us traveling from benghazi to Derna, and that's usually a three-hour drive it took us more than seven hours last night to get into the city because so many roads and bridges were damaged and destroyed but you know when we talk about the divisions in this country Poppy, and this is a country that has been bitterly divided this is a country where city has been fighting city east has been fighting west for more than a decade now. But what we see, you have so many people from all parts of the country that have come together here to help the people of Dena, the people of eastern Libya in dealing with this. One woman I spoke to a short time ago saying this catastrophe has united us, and it
2: seems it has, at least for now probably. Well, I'm so glad you said that, because in the worst disasters, it is what can bring out the best in humanity. Jamana, it is invaluable to have you and your team on the ground. Thank you for making the journey. We know you will stay there and keep reporting on this. We appreciate it, Phil. Cars floating in the ocean, door frames, people being pulled out of the sea, that is what
3: they're dealing with. And I think almost as importantly, when you see it, you cannot ignore it. And that's why Jamana being there and showing that um, is so critical. Pay attention to these things. They matter to people. Well, ahead, our breaking news coverage of the historic auto strike. It's going to continue. We're going to speak with the former CEO of Chrysler about what he thinks should and could be done. Stay with us.
20: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down
7: graduation events. At this moment,
13: Workers are on strike against the big Three. Twelve
6: 12,700 members who will be walking out. I don't know how I'm gonna survive, but I'm gonna do it.
5: There's
15: a fine line here that we won't go past.
5: Shame on them, they what they're saying is complete BS.
21: Three federal gun charges, it is the first criminal prosecution of a president's child in history.
22: The prospect remains that this is not the end of these charges for Hunter Biden. The constitutionality of
7: these charges are very much in doubt.
23: Donald Trump will not be on trial in Georgia in October, but two of his co-defendants will be. What did I do wrong?
12: I didn't do anything wrong. It does give him a preview of what the evidence will be. It's
5: a big win.
2: morning, well, everyone. Welcome to CNN uh, This Morning. We're glad you're here.
3: That was a packed first hour, and there's so much breaking news, including like several things that you and I are both deeply fascinated with because of how important and consequential yeah. they are at this moment.
2: And because of what you were, you were before we got lucky enough to have you here, the chief White House correspondent. Three huge headwinds this morning for the Biden White House.
3: Yeah, no question about it. We're going to get into all of them, but we're starting with the one that is probably the biggest and certainly has the biggest impact on the United States economy and potentially the president's political fortunes. Breaking news this morning. For the first time in history, auto workers are now striking against all three big three automakers and all at once. The companies failed to strike a deal with the United Auto Workers Union by midnight. And right now, nearly 13,000 workers have walked off the job at three different plants in Michigan, Ohio and Missouri. The union's president, Sean Fain, says even more workers and plants across the nation will join the strike if their demands for higher wages benefits are not met. He says workers aren't getting their fair share of record profits, while CEOs have been getting huge raises.
4: You heard the CEO of Ford say that it would bankrupt them if they met your demands.
5: What do you think of that? I think it's a joke. They could double our wages and they could not raise the price of vehicles, and they would still make billions of dollars. It's a lie like everything else that comes out of their mouth. Are more facilities going on strike? If they, don't, if they don't take care of our members, they will.
2: I should note we'll be joined. Vanessa, our colleague, is going to talk to the CEO of General Motors ahead in the show, responding to all of what the UAW is saying. But an extended strike could raise car prices, send ripple effects through the U.S. economy. Some analysts Say a 10 day full strike, not this targeted strike, full strike could cost the U.S. economy more than $5 billion. CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yerkevich, live with us uh, from a Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan, has this reporting.
6: Phil and Poppy, day one of this historic auto strike, a strike by the UAW against all three big automakers taking place in targeted strikes across three different states. We are here at the Ford Assembly Plant in Wayne, Michigan. So you have actually people still working inside the facility at different locals and then you have some folks with locals outside on the picket lines. I want to bring in Scott Fox. He's been with Ford for over 30 years. You are out here today. This is actually your first strike because Ford has not struck since the 1970s. Your feelings as you're out here this morning.
24: It's just, I got to look out for the people that are coming up behind me right now. We, we want to keep this place running and we want to keep Ford still strong, but we need to do what we need to do to keep it that way.
6: There are a list of demands that the union has that they say the automakers did not meet. What is your top priority that you want to see in this next contract?
24: I want to see the two-tier people. I want that to see that abolished, eliminated, and or reduced greatly. I just don't feel that we have a guy right here who was walking the line with me last night overnight time. 18 years. It took him 18 years to get the full time. Ten years part-time employee and then it took him eight years to get the full pay. That's just not, that's not called for. Yeah, I mean, hes he's been committed here with the company. So that's, that's my biggest thing is reducing that, that tier program that they've got going down.
6: The union is doing a targeted strike approach. I want to know, do you think that's going to be effective in these negotiations? Oh,
24: definitely, yeah, yeah, because what's going to happen is if things don't improve in regards to that, we're going to take out maybe Livonia Trans, or we'll take out an engine plant. And by that time, everything else will fall from that point there. But right here, this is, we're serious. This is what we're doing. We need to get on board.
6: Thank you so much, Scott Fox. You heard it, there is a strategy in place by the union as this strike unfolds. Now, in terms of the companies, uh, GM Stellantis saying that they are disappointed that they could not reach deals by this midnight deadline. And Ford saying that they received a counter proposal from the union as late as 8 p.m. last night, essentially saying if they did not meet their wage demands, that there would be no deal. So this strike will continue today at these three facilities across the country. We are expecting to hear from Sean Fain again in Detroit uh, during a rally at 5 p.m. with Bernie Sanders. But in the meantime, you're going to see these shift changes of workers out here on the picket lines in day one of this historic strike. Phil, Poppy.
3: That's Vanessa Yurkiewicz on the ground. Stay with her. She'll be with us over the course of the next couple of hours, continuing to follow this every step of the way. But joining us now is former CEO of Chrysler Motors, Bob Nardelli. Mardelli, Bob, I appreciate your time. I want to start with kind of the components of the negotiations themselves, because we're talking about the politics or what it might mean for the macroeconomy. But in terms of what the UAW put on the table, you talk about the 40% raises over 40 years, restore cost of living, pension, retiree, health coverage provisions, four-day work week, limits to part-time workers and forced overtime. Obviously, the electric vehicles and that transition has been critical. Of those elements, what is most problematic for the
25: automaker CEOs at this point? Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you for having me on this morning. And, and I agree with everything that you and Poppy had said. I mean, this is very, very unfortunate that it has reached this uh, this position. And again, I think, uh, how did we get here? And then I'll answer your question, is because household income has not been able to keep up with inflation. And inflation is a result of many of the administrative policies that are out there today. Energy's up 40%, that happened day one when they surrendered energy independence. So if you look at this from a, from a very pragmatic standpoint, household income has to keep up with inflation. They're just trying to make a, a, an earning to be able to provide for their families. So I I give them that point. Some of the other demands are really overreaching. It's possible to go back and and put back in place the pension program that was negotiated back in 07, 08 and 09. And I can tell you that Bill Ford worked tirelessly to save Ford back then. We were all going through the financial meltdown. This is not a case where Ford says, I just want to take care of our our workers. You know, Ford lost $6 billion in the last two years with, again, another administrative policy to convert to electric vehicles. They just took a $9.2 billion grant to be able to build a battery plant in Michigan so that's, that's proof positive of their commitment to their UAW workers. So I think some of these demands, 40 hours pays for 32 hours work. I understand you got to put it all on the table and then come together. But this has been a very polarizing negotiation. And again, historic when all three go out. You know, yeah. the UAW has spent count hours tactically deciding how to go on strike. I'm not sure they spent the same amount of time figuring out how to get back to work, Phil. So to
3: that point, you know, you have uh, pointed out over the course of the last several weeks your close relationship with uh, Sean Fain's, uh, the individual who was Sean Fain at the time during the Great Recession, uh, Ron Gettelfinger, was a critical piece of why you guys were able to save the auto industry. But I guess my question, and I think this gets to what you were just saying, this is what Sean Fain ran on to be the UAW chief. And in large part, his kind of Ability to get to this point derives from what happened in 2008 and 2009, and how workers feel about what's transpired since. So, why, are, why is anybody surprised by his position here?
25: Well, let's go back to that period. You know, there was an awakening under the Obama administration with uh, Larry Summers and Ratner that finally came to grips that even if they let Chrysler go down the tube, the the, the domino effect on the supplier base would be catastrophic. And that's what we see today. It's about a 10 to 1 ratio. So, if the entire 150,000 UAW workers go out, Phil, that's over a million people whose jobs will be affected in tier 1, 2, 3, right. and 4 suppliers. And, and look at the impact on the dealers. Now, the dealers are going to have to raise prices. Because they're concerned about inventory and they're trying to build cash to get through this downturn. But I think Sean Fain and the UAW uh
3: know all isn't. That's the point of leverage, though. Right. You've been through these negotiations. You came up through uh, through the top tiers of the business world. You understand leverage and the point here that Fain and his people are utilizing to get to here. They're saying they're doing that, knowing all of that, because they want leverage in these negotiations.
25: No question they have the leverage right now. I mean they look over the fence, Phil, and they see u p s forty percent uh the average full term drivers is making one hundred and seventy four thousand dollars you look at American Airlines, you look at the dock workers on the west coast u a w is just saying hey it's my turn I'm right. standing in line, and all these other companies have been able to get wage increases for a standard of living for their family and so i don't I don't deny the importance of that but but again, we have to have uh, sound mind coming together. I mean, we could both stay polarized here and basically shut down Ford, shut down Chrysler, I like to call him Chrysler, and, <clears throat> and General Motors. That's not going to have a tremendous impact on already a very fragile economy. That's my concern on the bigger picture, Phil.
3: Yeah, uh, it's a good point. It's why the White House is very co- concerned and cognizant of this as well. Bob Nardelli, I appreciate your perspective, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. And just a reminder, in our next hour, we are going to speak, our Vanessa Yurkiewicz is going to speak with the CEO of GM, Mary Barra, for her perspective. We've heard a lot from Sean Fain and the UAW. We'll get her perspective in the next hour. Poppy?
2: It's just really interesting what he said about who has the leverage right now, given all he went through in the middle of the crisis. Great interview, Phil. Thank you very much. Also, let's talk about Hurricane Lee. From New England up to Canada, Hurricane Lee on track to bring heavy rain, wind, coastal flooding today and through the weekend. Parts of the East Coast already feeling the storm's effects, including dangerous surf and rip condi- riptide conditions. The governor of Maine has declared a state of emergency. They're requesting some federal assistance to prepare for Lee. Joining us now, the director of the National Hurricane Center, Michael Brennan. Good morning to you. We've been watching this all week. And now what are we in store for this weekend, both in the northeastern United States and then up into Canada?
26: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're right. We've been anticipating this for a while. We're going to start to see those direct impacts uh, start to move into portions of southeastern New England uh, as early as later this afternoon, this evening, and then spread northward up into Maine overnight tonight and into Saturday. But the big story with Lee is just it's a large hurricane. The tropical storm force winds extend out over 300 miles from the center. So even though the center is expected to stay offshore of the coast of southeastern New England, those tropical storm force winds are going to move into places like Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, as we get later today into tonight and then spread northward along the coast of New England and up into Atlantic Canada overnight tonight and early Saturday.
2: Looking big picture here, uh, what are your biggest concerns about the storm?
26: Well, in terms of wind impacts, you know, this is a little different from a typical nor'easter. There's leaves still on the trees in New England. There is wet soil, so there's going to be the potential for tree damage, power outages, especially Cape Cod and the islands, especially down east Maine, where we could see some of those stronger wind gusts. We're also concerned about the potential for coastal flooding of one to three feet above ground level. That's inundation of the ocean water moving in over normally dry land, all the way from Long Island Sound, all the way across the coast of New England up into Maine. So that could cause some, you know, certainly coastal flood flooding, road closures, and, and uh, some inconvenience and some, some potential threat to life uh, in some of these areas where the, the flooding might occur at the time of high tide and those waters will
3: be a little higher. Yeah,
2: and that's why you have the emergency declaration in Maine. Michael, thanks.
3: Yeah. Well, the president's son has been indicted, but some experts, they say one of the gun charges against Hunter Biden is already on shaky legal ground. We're going to break down what comes next with CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig.
2: Former President Trump is now weighing in on the indictment as he faces his own, what he said in a new interview.
7: It's a sad situation. I mean, nobody should be happy about this
3: former president trump weighing in on an extraordinary turn of events in the hunter biden case the president's son was indicted on gun charges on thursday by special counsel david weiss after the dramatic collapse of his plea deal in court this summer now it marks the first time in u.s history that the justice department has charged the child of a sitting president joining us now is cnn senior legal analyst and former assistant u.s attorney for the southern district of new york ellie honig um walk us through this case and
22: Why this happened. So there's a bit of history here. It's really important to understand the bigger picture. This investigation of Hunter Biden started five years ago in 2018 during the administration of Donald Trump. The person who was running it was the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware, David Weiss. Now, he investigated for two-plus years during the Trump administration, during which no charges were filed. January 2021, of course, Joe Biden takes office. Now, ordinarily, the president has the power to and does dismiss all 93 U.S. attorneys across the country. Joe Biden, however, left David Weiss in place to avoid any appearance of interference with this particular case. Now, fast forward two plus more years to this past summer, July 2023, DOJ and Hunter Biden go into court and they say, judge, we have a deal or we think we have a deal. Now, let's take a second to look at what that original plea deal a couple months ago was. The deal was Hunter Biden was going to plead guilty to two income tax counts, failure to pay during 2017 and 18. Those are misdemeanors. And the deal between the parties was he's going to plead guilty. He's going to get probation. No federal prison time. There's also this sort of unusual, not unheard of, but unusual firearm charge. It's technically illegal for an addict to possess a firearm. But the deal was, as long as he complies with certain conditions, we're going to dismiss this charge. He doesn't have to plead guilty to it. The problem was, they didn't have an agreement as to what happens with everything else. Hunter Biden said, we're covered for everything else. DOJ said, no, you're not. Judge said, you don't have a deal and rejected that. Which leads us to the next step here. A month later, David Weiss was named special counsel. If you're thinking, gee, that's the same guy as that guy. Yes, they changed his status to special counsel, which gives him some more independence and power. And then yesterday, We saw this new indictment of Hunter Biden.
2: There are constitutional questions about this, Ellie, and this is part of the defense case. Can you walk us through
22: why? For sure. So the charges that were lodged yesterday against Hunter Biden, the indictment, indictment charges him with three counts, all related to that same crime I talked about, possession of a firearm by an addicted person. There's two related counts because he made false statements in the application. It asks, are you an addict? He checked, no. He was. Those are false statements. There will be, and Hunter Biden's lawyer has said this, a constitutional challenge to that statute, to that law as a whole. Now, the Supreme Court has been very broad on the Second Amendment, and certain groups, largely conservatives, have actually been challenging that specific law. They argue it's unconstitutional, it's too vague, and in fact, one court of appeals, the Fifth Circuit, just last month said this law is unconstitutional. Now, that's not necessarily binding in Delaware, which is in a different circuit right now, but it could be headed up to the Supreme Court. They have a history of being quite broad when it comes to the Second Amendment.
3: Where does the broader investigation, now yeah. that this is kind of a separate thing from the tax chart, where does it all go from here for Hunter Biden? So he's
22: charged right now with those gun charges, right. but it's quite likely, in my view, that DOJ is going to add tax charges. Remember, Hunter Biden was originally supposed to plead guilty to those misdemeanor tax charges. One thing that's important to know here, we learned this, if you dig deep into the paperwork from the original plea deal, the one that fell apart, Hunter Biden agreed that the amount of taxes he did not pay was $1.199 million to $1.593 million. That's a good amount of money. I think it's very likely that Hunter Biden does see tax charges sometime soon. As to what happens next, Hunter Biden can go to trial, of course. That may well land during the 2024 election. It could be that Donald Trump is on trial simultaneously in a different courtroom, or he can try to enter into a plea deal. His lawyers are trying to revive the old plea deal. They're basically saying that's still binding. DOJ says, oh, no, it's not. Or he can always enter into a revised plea deal, a new plea deal under new terms, which likely would be harsher for Hunter Biden than the original plea deal.
3: Which of those is most likely at this point?
22: You know, if I had to guess, the vast majority of federal cases, well into the high 90 percent, does plead out. It's usually in the interest of both parties to minimize risk. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how much is Hunter Biden worried about. I don't want to be a distraction from my father during the election. So if I had to bet, I would bet on a plea deal. But this also could end up in, in trial as well. As Caitlin Pollins pointed out, Abby Lowell goes to trial a lot. His he does. Lead, lead counsel, and he's good at it, and he's a good trial lawyer.
2: Um, just don't go anywhere because we yes. just got more of this interview that NBC's Kristen Welker did with Trump. Here's what he said about the Mar-a-Lago tapes. Listen,
14: I want to ask you about the case related to Mar-a-Lago. A new charge suggests you asked a staffer to delete security camera footage so it wouldn't get into the hands of investigators. Did it's you false. do that?
16: It's false. false.
14: But let me tell you
7: what you testify later. to that under
14: oath? i am testify
16: to Would you testify to that under
7: oath? It's a okay. fake charge by this deranged lunatic uh, prosecutor who lost in the Supreme Court nine to nothing and he tried to destroy lots of lives. Uh, he's a lunatic. So it's a fake charge. But more importantly, the tapes weren't deleted. In other words, there was nothing done to him.
22: Okay. Interesting claim by the former president. I, I'll, I'll ignore the deranged lunatic stuff. Uh, but if he says he's, going to, he's willing to testify under oath that he never gave that order to delete the footage, there's only one way to do that. You've got to take the stand. There's no other venue or forum for him to do that. And taking the stand in any defendant's own defense is rare and very risky. And here, I think it would be completely self-destructive. I know Donald Trump's been saying he wants to testify. I assure you his lawyers are telling him. Please do not do that. We advise you not to do that. It would be extraordinarily dangerous for you to take the stand and try to testify in your own defense. And by the way, no defendant has to do that. No defendant has to prove anything. All they have to do is show the government failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt.
2: Yeah. Well, it was fascinating. I think It's a preview of what is probably going to be a pretty fascinating interview that Kristen has yeah, with Trump on sure. Sunday. Thank you, Ellie the judge of the Georgia election subversion case sitting down, uh, shutting down, I should say, District Attorney Fannie Willis's effort to try all 19 defendants, including the former president, all together at the same time. So what does that tell us about the trial dates? That's ahead.
3: And President Biden has called himself the most pro-union president in American history. But how will he navigate the UAW strike against the big three automakers? It's not even a party. We are live at the White House next. My name is Joe Biden,
19: and I'm a car guy. I intend to be the most pro-union president, leading the most pro-union administration in American history. I'm proud to be the most pro-union president in American history. I promised you you'd have a union president,
3: and I am because you're the best. Well, this morning, an unprecedented strike against all three big U.S. automakers, and it's something that is clearly... A big moment for not just the economic scene, not just what's going on in Michigan with these striking workers uh, and around the country, but also with politics as well. It's something the White House has been closely watching over the course of the last several months and certainly been honed in on in the last several weeks. I want to go straight to CNN's Arlette Science, who's live at the White House. Arlette, the administration has found their way out of so many of these types of moments with other industries, with other unions over the course of the last two and a half years. What are they saying right now?
9: Well, Phil, just moments ago, a White House official told me President Biden will deliver remarks today on these negotiations between the UAW and those big three auto companies. This will be the first time we are hearing from President Biden since they uh, went on that targeted strike just at midnight last night. But it comes at a time that the White House had been very closely watching these negotiations and talking with all of the parties involved for several weeks now. President Biden himself placed phone calls in those final hours to the president of the UAW, Sean. Fain, as well as the leaders of the three auto companies that are involved, uh, they've had their intermediary Gene Sperling uh, s- talking with all of the parties along the way. Of course, what's important to note here is that the White House doesn't have the legal authority to be direct party to the negotiations, but they have been uh, constantly checking in and encouraging these parties to remain at the negotiating table. Now, one of the focuses for the White House, likely heading into today, is trying to uh, come up with ways to blunt any economic impact that could arise due to this strike. You have to think about all of the suppliers that are also working with these auto companies who could be affected. But this also has a broader political implications for President Biden. Of course, he has described himself as the most pro-union president in history. One of his priorities is trying to uh, boost uh, competitive wages and competitive conditions for uh, union workers across the board. But at the same time, he is also balancing this desire to transition to a clean energy of future. And that is at the heart of some of these negotiations as these auto workers, the unions and the auto companies are dealing with the transition to electric vehicles. But in a few hours, they haven't given us an exact time. We are expecting to hear from President Biden about these latest in negotiations as the UAW has now gone on strike.
3: Yeah, the, the words the president chooses, one, will have to be very careful. As you know, not a party to these negotiations. They are very cognizant of that fact in these moments. But also, the UAW has withheld its endorsement up to now. Mm-hmm. Michigan is a huge piece of Biden's map to 270 electoral votes. Um, this is going to be really fascinating. Arlette, please keep us posted throughout the course of the morning.
2: Fulton County judge, the Fulton County judge in the Georgia election subversion case, shutting down the district attorney Fonnie Willis's effort to try all 19 defendants, that includes Trump, together in October. In this case, the judge announced that Trump and 16 other co-defendants will move forward with the trial date. It has not yet been announced. The two remaining co-defendants, Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, they both sought their right to a speedy trial. That will begin in October. Let's talk about what this means, especially for the former president, Is former prosecutor in Atlanta, Sarah Flack. Well, to that question, Sarah, and thanks for joining us, what does this mean for Trump?
21: Well, what it means for Trump is that basically he's gonna have an opportunity to have a dress rehearsal of his trial, which most criminal defendants never have. So he will get to see basically all of the evidence, because the state has told us that that they're going to have to try this case multiple times. We know on October 23rd, they're going to have all of these witnesses, the same witnesses that are going to be having to be subpoenaed in the spring for Trump's trial. So he's going to have a great opportunity to rehearse basically what his defense is going to be. He'll have an opportunity to hear what all of these witnesses are going to say. So it's definitely a win for Trump in this in this day.
3: Sir, the other Kind of pieces of what happened yesterday in terms of where the judge was on uh, things like the right for defense counsel to talk to grand jurors, uh, prosecutors listing 30 co-conspirators in the case uh, that weren't indicted. The defense team will get those 30 names, transcripts and witness testimony uh, that would be available. What do those tell you? What should people take away from what that all means?
21: Well, they're not going to have just full sale of all of the conversations and deliberations because Georgia law does not allow you to to know what went on during deliberations. So the judge uh, was very careful. What he's going to be requiring is that these attorneys supply a list of questions, precise questions that they would like to ask these jurors, and then the judge will either deny or allow certain requests. But they're not just going to have a full sale opportunity to hear what was going on in deliberations, which it sounds like that's what they were wanting to do. No, they're not going to be able to do that. So it has to be related to something in the trial, not just, well, you know, what were you guys talking about? What made you come to this decision um, to recommend an indictment?
2: Do you think that this really gets whittled down from 19, even though they're not going to all be tried together, but many people pleading out maybe some cooperating witnesses if they need that cooperation?
21: I think we will see somebody here cooperate. I mean, it's just rare to have nineteen defendants, and it sound I I I would be shocked if we didn't have at least one cooperator. We know that there are a bunch of unindicted co-conspirators. Mm-hmm. Those are people who could have been charged but were not charged. And those folks will likely, some of those folks will certainly be cooperating. We also know there's a list of a number of folks that the state is turning over um in terms of who they spoke with that helped with this investigation. So the the defense team is gonna get to talk to those folks as well. I would be surprised if we didn't have one or two of these defendants plead um, and cooperate, turn state's evidence to testify against Donald Trump and his co-defendants.
3: Yeah, an important day. So many more critical days to come. Sarah Flack, thanks for walking us through it. Appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you. The Senate now launching a bipartisan investigation into a Coast Guard cover up of dozens of sexual assault cases at the Coast Guard Academy. It's all happening because of a series of stories by CNN's Pamela Brown and her team. She broke the story, and she joins us. That's next. this morning, a new Senate investigation has been launched into a Coast Guard cover up of dozens of cases of sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy that were kept secret for years. Now, this is all happening because of a series of stories by CNN. Chief investigative correspondent Pamela Brown headed those stories. She joins us now. Pamela, bring us up to speed on the latest here.
23: Well, Phil, the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations for DHS usually keeps its investigations under wraps. But given the gravity of this, it's making this investigation public. Now, as CNN first reported, a Coast Guard investigation that substantiated dozens of rapes at the Coast Guard Academy was kept hidden for years. It was dubbed Operation Belt Anchor, and it found some of the accused had moved into top roles of the Coast Guard and other military branches or retired with full and benefits. Now, victims were discouraged from pursuing the allegations and still had to go to class and work with the people, the person who allegedly assaulted them. Some victims ended up dropping out of the academy, but the assaults and the investigation they were never reported to Congress or made public until CNN started asking questions. And now the Senate wants answers. In a letter sent to the head of the Coast Guard, Center, Richard Blumenthal cited CNN's reporting and said the leaders who oversaw or perhaps created the environment where misconduct occurred and did nothing must be held accountable and... The public deserves to know why so many reported cases of sexual assaults and harassment were allowed to go uninvestigated for so many years. Senator Blumenthal told us this was the most shameful incident of a cover-up of sexual assault that he's ever seen in the U.S. military. And the letter is also asking for a long list of documents from the Coast Guard, including information on every sexual assault at the Academy from 2006 to present. Phil?
2: Pamela, this is just one, as we understand it, right? One of the investigations into the cover-up, is that right?
23: Yeah, that's right, Poppy. There's been a hearing on the Hill. There's been a call for an IG investigation. And the Coast Guard announced its own 90-day inquiry in July. This is all in the wake of CNN's reporting over the summer. Now, the commandant of the Coast Guard, Linda Fagan, she has publicly apologized to the victims and their families.
3: Which I think brings the kind of critical question here. What do the victims have to say about all this, Pamela?
23: Well, they have a lot to say, Phil. I mean, we've spoken to so many women and some men who were assaulted, some going as far back as the 1990s, some just recently. And they all tell the similar stories. There is a pattern here of them being discouraged from reporting their assaults or being told their careers would end if they said anything. And most of them, they are still dealing with the trauma and they are are looking for justice and closure on this.
3: It's great and important reporting. Obviously, much more to come as well. Pamela Brown, thank you.
2: Thank you. Now to this. Police Captain Joseph Alton is the kind of guy who knows everyone in his town. But in addition to serving that community, he's been volunteering for the Maryland Special Olympics for 15 years. And in that time, he has gone beyond the call of duty, raising more than $250,000, recruiting other law enforcement officers to join the cause. But it's the the lasting friendship he has built that keeps him coming back every year. Watch.
4: Right along with police hello. captain Joseph Alton, our town is amazing. He'll talk up his small town of Haver de Grace, Maryland. Hello. And say hello. Hello, sir. To just about everyone he sees. How you been? Good. Take care. But around his office hang signs of another form of service with the Special Olympics. We get way more back from them than they'll ever get from us. Captain Alton has been volunteering with Special Olympics Maryland for 15 years, raising awareness and more than $250,000.
7: We're doing the polar bear punch and we're raising money for Special Olympics
4: presenting athletes with awards and recruiting other law enforcement to join the cause. I went one time, was a medal presenter. It's like baiting, you know, a fish on a hook, you you literally get reeled in and then it just kind of grows from there. What up front? And in that time, he's built a special bond with athletes like Stacey Holt.
24: He came up to me, can I be your mascot? I said, sure. You've been good? Yeah.
4: He got her into this gym, helping her train for a Special Olympics torch run in Berlin and assisting her with this speech.
24: I'm truly honored to carry the flame of her. Thank you, everyone. He would not give up. I was greatly appreciated. The impact that
3: you have, not only on Stacy and athletes locally, but athletes around the state, it's a phenomenal thing.
4: This summer, Alton himself won a community service award. I'm going to start. <laughs> you can see it meant the world, but not as much as this friendship. I will always be involved to a Special Olympics because of the vision and drive and energy that you give back to me on a daily basis. Proof that no matter who wears the medals.
24: For all your dedication and hard work.
4: These moments are the greatest prize.
7: You're amazing. Thank you, Joe. You're amazing.
4: Gabe Cohen, CNN. Appreciate it. Have her to grace Maryland.
2: Nothing better. A great story. Kevin McCarthy again fighting to keep his role as speaker after some Republicans call for his dismissal. Does the far right faction faction have his party? Do they have the votes to oust him? What his future could look like next?
3: And just it just and we learned that President Biden will deliver remarks today on negotiations between the auto workers union and the big three. Now a strike underway. We've got the latest. Stay with us. Well, Kevin McCarthy is once again fighting to keep his role as House Speaker against the far-right faction of his party. And despite the public battle, the House Speaker says he's confident they don't have the votes to remove him. This dynamic has existed since McCarthy won the speakership back in January. Actually, the process of winning the speakership back in January laid this pretty bare. And he's uh, trying to figure out how to deal with folks like Representative Matt Gates and other far-right members. Now, to become Speaker, he struck a deal with Those individuals that gave each individual member the ability to call for a floor vote to remove him if they felt like it was needed. McCarthy and Gates are both getting pressured on the issue.
7: Threats don't matter and sometimes people do those things because of personal things and that's all fine. You know what, if it takes a fight, I'll have a fight.
11: I'm concerned for the speaker that he seems to be a little rattled and unhinged in a time when we need focus and strong effort. Uh, Whether or not McCarthy faces a motion to vacate is within his own hands. All he has to do is come
3: into compliance with the deal we made in January. Gates appears to be referring to comments McCarthy made during Thursday's closed-door meeting where he dared those threatening to remove him to, quote, move the effing motion. Joining us now is CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon, Politico, in, uh, Politico New York political reporter Emily Noe, and political video reporter The Washington Post Joyce Coe. John Avalon, you started laughing there because... <laughs> <laughs> Because, for all the like, reasons, Bill, for, yeah. you can say whatever you want about Matt Gates, but he ex- he knows how to just kind of.
27: The technical term is concern troll. That was a concern <laughs> troll is...
3: by Matt Gates, <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and
27: and he did it quite masterfully. You know, I'm just really concerned that he's becoming unhinged, and it's really within his power uh, whether or not he gets this this lack of confidence But Look, it's obviously McCarthy is in a position of weakness because of a small group of folks on the far right, and he's got a narrow margin. Um, but lest we forget, McCarthy's two predecessors, as Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner and, and uh, Paul Ryan, as you well remember, both were effectively forced out slash quit the position because they were tired of dealing with the demands of the far right, who've only gotten louder and more powerful. And that's a structural problem within the Republican Party. Susan Glasser just called it the toddler caucus. Mm. There are other words for it. But effectively, it ends up hijacking a deliberative democracy, and the extreme ends up dominating the debate.
2: Does Matt Gaetz have anything to lose here? Because he is saying that I will do this every single day, put a motion to vacate out.
28: I mean, he's echoing, like John said, like what you're hearing on the far right of this party. There have been calls for uh, McCarthy's motion to vacate since... January, since he got into this very tenuous leadership position, um, and I don't think that this is necessarily new. You hear Representative Bishop from North Carolina saying this for the last several months, um, and you know, regardless of what McCarthy does, it seems like he can't. I mean, this that meeting happened after he had launched this impeachment inquiry into President Biden. It seems like he can't acquiesce. Uh, the far right of his party, regardless of what he does.
29: Yeah, Gates' shtick is effective, whatever you call it, a tantrum. If you call it just being a rebel, it works. And that's why he's not giving up uh, that playbook. And it's been a rough week for the Speaker, just like it was a rocky path to that gavel. It took 15 rounds. It was, if you covered it, it was very long hours. Uh, And now he's faced with a decision. Does he give in to the hard right faction of his caucus? Or does he try to work out a deal um, or does he just stand his ground, call their bluff, put the defense spending bill to a vote, and like he dropped that F-bomb, just make them do what they will and see if they really follow through?
3: I would say, and this is not a defense of any individual, it's a defense of the institution. Matt Gaetz is effective because he has no responsibilities. Correct. He has nothing that he has to do. He's not leading a conference, but he also doesn't have to fund the government. He doesn't have to increase the debt ceiling. He doesn't have to pre- prevent calamity from happening on so most bills. So nothing to lose. Right. And he's very well, effective at having nothing to lose, which I don't necessarily know is like the highest bar it, in the world it, for a it, lawmaker. It's
27: not, but, but it, 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 Robert, it's a republic if you can keep it. That's what we have to lose. The chaos under the Capitol affects the efficiency and effectiveness of governing in a democratic republic. So we all lose when the tantrum caucus dominates. And let's just take a snapshot of what's happening right now. The, the Speaker's trying to placate the far right by moving forward with an impeachment inquiry absent facts that traditionally run to that standard. The government's looking at a shutdown at the end of the month. One senator's holding up all military promotions. There's a defense bill authorization problem. I mean, over and over again, these are all self-inflicted. And they're disproportionately because of the far right of the Republican Party.
29: And the government right, shutdown right, is right. looming. The Republican has everything to lose, but McCarthy, unlike Gates, does have a lot to lose as well if we talk about the individuals. Like Joyce pointed out, he started out this very bad week um, as my colleagues at Political Playbook in the Capitol, in D.C. said, like, skidding the CR uh, grid, CR skids um, with the impeachment lubricant. And here he is. Uh, <laughs> what does he have next to do? What does he have left as a lubricant? Does he have anything? Well, the far right is, uh, you know, blocking these procedural
28: motions on, I was saying, you know, this uh, government shutdown that's sort of looming. So I think when we're talking about what uh, the Republicans and uh, the country at large has to lose, it's, you know, are they going to avert a government shutdown and, you know, get to work and keep the lights on in Washington?
3: Emily, um, not that I ever want to stop talking about this topic in particular. You missed it, right? A little bit. None of this happened while I was there. I just want to put that out there right now. Um, (laughs) Something that struck me this week were were comments that Hillary Clinton made on the issue that is, I mean, the number of Democrats who aren't involved in the Biden campaign and aren't in the inner circle who are just losing their minds right now. And you could say, if you look at the numbers, that they've got reason to Mm -hmm. um, and throwing all sorts of theories out there. And Hillary Clinton said this, listen.
30: When people say to me, well, he's old. Yeah, that's right. But look at what he's gotten done. And then if that's not enough for you, look at the alternative. And, uh, you know, I'm all in. We just got to get the naysayers and the whiners and the snipers, uh, you know, to just go to the back of the room because they're not helping at all.
29: This issue, this argument, this fact, this narrative is not going to Leave the Biden campaign or the election season anytime soon. Age will be a factor for Joe Biden. Age will be a factor uh, for Donald Trump, if indeed they end up being the nominees. So you have to make the argument uh, that maybe they are competent enough that they are getting things done despite their old age. But advanced age, aging in the public eye, it's an issue in Washington D.C. When we look at Dianne Feinstein, uh, when we look um, also at at, at Mitch McConnell, it's something that the public is very aware of.
27: Yeah, and. and 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 they should be. But what Hillary Clinton's calling out is what Jim Messina called sort of the bedwetting impulse in the Democratic Party. He did say that. Um, And this entire segment, just to tie it up with a bow for you, the first part of it is the argument why the alternative matters in people's calculus, right? It's the Joe Biden line, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. When you look at the self-inflicted wounds in the Republican Party because of the far right and the looming possibility that Donald Trump will be the nominee despite indictments to trying to overturn an election, that's the best argument they got, even after a pretty bad week for Joe Biden,
3: frankly. Right, right. The Republicans um, have self-inflicted. Legal. John Tyre of Bose, Avalon, <laughs> Emily Choice. Thanks, guys. Thank Happy you. Friday. Appreciate Thank it. Well, the United Auto Workers on the picket line this morning after walking off the job at midnight. The CEO of General Motors will join us next. Stay with us.
2: It is the top of the hour. Good Friday morning, everyone. And we have a lot of news to get to this morning. Here are five things to start off your Friday, September 15th. It is official. Members of the United Auto Workers Union have striked targeted strikes against the big three automakers. Three plants on strike this morning as their contract expired at midnight. The CEO of General Motors joins us this hour.
3: And Hunter Biden is now the first child of a sitting president to be charged by the Justice Department. He is now facing three gun charges after his initial plea deal collapsed last month.
2: From New England all the way up to Canada, Hurricane Lee on track to bring heavy rain, wind and coastal flooding today and through the weekend.
3: And as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tries to avoid a government shutdown, he has a message for the Republicans threatening to revoke his speakership. Bring it on.
2: In a new article this morning, NBA legend Kareem Abdul Jabbar asks the question Is Biden too old to be president? The NBA Hall of Famer joins us live in studio just ahead. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. This is we've
10: seen seconds. what we've Still
15: seen in 80 years of working with the UAW. We put four great offers on the table, and we get little pieces of paper about one aspect or the other. We've never gotten a really serious counteroffer in two weeks.
5: These companies got to come to the pump for, the, for their workers. They want to call them family when it's when it's when it's when it's easy, but you know what? The proof's in the pudding. And you know what? They haven't been there. They haven't taken care of their workers. We went backwards in the last 16 years. Backwards.
3: And breaking just moments ago, the White House says President Biden will speak today about that historic strike against all three big three automakers. This is the first time in history that the union has gone on strike against all three. This was the scene outside the Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan, after the companies failed to reach a deal with the union. By midnight, more than 12,000 workers have walked off the job and targeted strikes at three different plants in Michigan, Ohio and Missouri. The United Auto Workers president tells CNN more workers and plants will join the strike if their demands for better wages and benefits aren't met. He says workers haven't had their fair share of record profits while CEOs have been giving themselves huge raises. But Ford's CEO insists the union's wage demands would bankrupt the company. 40%
15: will put us out of business. We would lose $15 billion. We would have to plant cut cut people, close plants. What's the good of that? It's not a sustainable business. There's a fine line here that we won't go
5: past.
2: Our next guest, Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow sent a letter in July to the CEOs of the big three automakers, urging them to, quote, negotiate in good faith. She and her Michigan Senate colleagues wrote this. Without American auto workers, the U.S. automotive industry would not have become the beating heart of the U.S. industrial revolution. The UAW helped create our middle class. Happy to be joined this morning by Senator Debbie Stabenow. Good morning to you, Senator. Do you support this strike? Do you support the workers?
30: I support the workers in what they want, Poppy. And I, I have to say, first of all, um, we are here at the North American Auto Show right now in Detroit, and our workers and our companies make the best cars and trucks in the world. The workers just want to make sure they have a fair share of that success. And I was there working on the auto rescue, very much helping to lead that back in 2009. Mm -hmm. And the workers took major concessions. Uh, There's no longer retiree health care. That hasn't happened since 2007. There's tiered approach to wages. They want to be restored. And then now moving forward on an exciting new clean energy economy, they want to know that they're going to be a partner in that, in the success in that.
2: You support the workers. You think they need fair wages. We just heard from Ford CEO who spoke to our colleague, Vanessa, and he also said that this final offer of a 20 percent pay raise over the life of the contract is the most lucrative they have ever given. Do you believe the union is demanding too much?
30: Well, this is about collective bargaining. It's not really about what um, I think, what you think, mm-hmm. it's about uh, what the workers need, what they view as just and fair. And that's what this is all about. I know they don't take it lightly. You know, it's it's a hardship to go out on strike. But I know for a lot of years, they've been taking a lot of sacrifice in order to support the companies.
2: Mm-hmm. And now we want to make sure that they are getting their fair share. One uh, interesting thing about the letter you sent to these CEOs in July is you specifically used the words negotiate in good faith. Here is what the UAW union president said about good faith and bad faith. Here he is.
5: Let's talk about what good faith is. They've had our economic demands for six weeks. We've told them from day one, we expect a bargain now, not wait till the end. They waited till last week. We had to file unfair labor practice charges on two companies to get them to come to the table. So they waited till the last week to want to get down to business. Shame on them. And what they're saying is complete BS. I,
2: I, will, I will say that the Ford CEO, Jim Farley, said he and Bill Ford, the chair of the company, went to give their final offer in person to Sean Fain and that he wasn't there at the table. Do you believe the CEOs have negotiated in good faith? Is that your understanding?
30: Well, I think that um, everyone is representing um, their interests, it's rough and tumble. Collective bargaining mm. is can be very tough. I think this is a very tough negotiation. And in the end, mm. they're going to have to come together and what they believe is just and fair for mm. everyone. But it's important that those, excuse me, I'm losing my earpiece. It's important that the workers who are creating these great new vehicles know that they are benefiting from their hard work.
2: Yeah, I, I'm really interested in your take. Can you hear me OK? No, I can't. OK, <laughs> yes, I know. You. These little buggers happens to me, too. Uh, the, the Biden administration, I know. I know. The, the Biden factor, and this is really interesting, right, because he's called himself the most pro-union president in American history. But when R.J. Tapper asked the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, about that this week, Sean Fain said, quote, I think there's a lot of work to be done in that category. I look back at FDR and presidents in that time frame, and they did a lot of work for labor. Are you concerned about what this strike means? I mean, they've withheld, the union has withheld their support for Biden so far. Michigan's a critical state. Right. Well, President Biden, in my
30: mind, no question that he's the most pro-union labor present we've had. And we're right now in a fight and he, and he is leading that to restore the middle class of our country. And so it's a process, it's not there yet. I understand the workers' frustrations, but we're turning things around to bring jobs home right now with the chip plants and rebuild America and be laser focused on the middle class. So this mm-hmm. is a, a, something in process. Um, we need to keep our, our workers so- strengthening the middle class as the focus. And I know that that's what
2: the president's doing. So let me, Senator, let me try to ask it in this way. Could not having the support of the United Auto Workers for Biden's reelection campaign tip the balance against him in Michigan? Well, the UIW is very
30: important. I have been very grateful for their support over all of these years. And I think in the end, when they're looking at the choices, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be surprised if they okay. were not supporting the president.
2: I want to turn to what uh, your Republican colleague Mitt Romney wrote this week announcing that he's not running again. He said, frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. You're also not seeking reelection in 2024. You said that, that you are inspired right. by a new generation of leaders. And you said that's why you've decided to pass the torch. What do you think of that as it relates to President Biden? and growing calls and concerns among Democrats also about his age. Well, first, I have to say that um,
30: this president has done more than any president half his age. Uh, when we look at the real results in the economy, I mean, 13 and a half million new jobs in the last two and a half years, getting us through the pandemic, what he's done internationally to build coalitions that uh, to bring the world back together. I, it, when we look at turning things around, no more trickle down, focus on the middle class. Um, I'm a strong supporter of the president. And to me, this is not about age. This is about getting things done. And he's getting
2: things done. You would argue Mitt Romney has been been effective in terms of standing up for what he believes. You would argue that you have been effective, but you're both saying it's time to pass the torch. You don't think the same is true for the president?
30: I think it's the individual decision that everyone has to make and on their own circumstances. Um, you know, first of all, Mitt Romney has, as you know, uh, great ties to Michigan with his of father, who is a former governor. So we... we uh, yeah. And uh, I'm, you know, it's been a really, uh, really a, uh, terrific, responsible United States senator. Uh, but I have to say, we each look around at the time and moment for our own personal lives. For me, we've got a lot of great leaders, younger leaders in Michigan um, that I feel very confident I can
2: pass the torch to. Okay. And so for me, it felt like the time. Fair enough. Senator Debbie Stabenow. thank you very much. We'll be watching very closely what happens in these negotiations there over
3: the weekend. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, Poppy. Well, sources tell CNN that President Biden will meet one-on-one with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky when he's in the U.S. next week. We're going to ask Christiane Amanpour what we can expect from that meeting. Stay with us. That's next. President Biden is expected to meet with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky here in the U.S. next week. Now, Biden and Zelensky are both scheduled to address the United Nations General Assembly in New York on Tuesday. Still unclear whether the pair will meet there or down in Washington, where Zelensky is also supposed to visit and go up to Capitol Hill. CNN's chief international anchor Christiane Amanpour joins us now. Uh, Welcome back. I'm fascinated by this because of the political dynamics in the United States Mm with the funding.
31: And that's why it's important, and that's why Zelensky's here, and he wants to make the case to the world and any other countries that are not supporting him at the UN. And then he wants to make the case to lawmakers that this is still a just cause, a worthy fight, and with the right amount of aid consistently, they can win. That is what he's going to try to say. So the question is, does it make a difference to
2: the Republicans who have been hold out on this? And it, the fact that the majority of American people now do not support new increase funding. Is that right? I, I was it is, under the it's impression 55
31: to 45%. Okay, which is the 55. The d- doesn't no. support. Okay, so yes. that's you know that's a, that's a change yeah, if it's, it's going down. Shift. But up until now the American people like the people around the world have supported the defense of democracy and the international rules-based order and the civilians who are being slaughtered by this illegal war from Russia. So it is going to be interesting to see what it what effect it has, but I think You know, the president and other world leaders have made the case consistently that you have a choice. Either we all want to be under the boot of Putin-style Russian authoritarianism, or people get the chance to try to defend their right to live free and independent.
3: We talk so much about kind of the geopolitical repercussions or negotiations uh, or efforts and sometimes don't talk about the people uh, in Ukraine. And and you are uh, on this week's episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, and I want to play a a piece of your piece. I'm
31: very, getting very emotional. Just watching. Yes, because they all have a story to tell. Each of them have a story to tell. But as a group, they can tell the whole story for their country.
32: dancer whose father just escaped from the front line seven people were there and
31: five were killed but every week there is something happening like this every week every week that news filters into this every week there is something happening
3: so i've been waiting for this it's beautiful explain to people what they were so what you're
31: there. watching are ballet dancers in the blue and yellow of the Ukraine colors. But what more importantly is a lot of them came out of Ukraine when the war started. This wonderful Dutch ballerina and a Russian-Ukrainian choreographer, very famous, who left Russia after the illegal invasion of Russia uh, you know, against Ukraine. He's a Bolshoi choreographer and came over and helped create a new troupe, United Ukraine Ballet. So the story is really interesting because they've even been to the Kennedy Center. And what you see is people who want to continue the fight whichever way they can. So this is their way of standing up for Ukrainian culture and history and art at a time when the Russian you know, aggression is focused on wiping out Ukraine's identity. Mm-hmm. So this is what's so important. And you also hear from some of them who stayed behind and why they stayed behind and why they're dancing still in Ukraine. And we even have stories of ballet dancers, men who've gone to the front and one of them was killed. It's the whole society through art and culture. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. And it is haunting. Yeah, and the music is phenomenal. And their heart and their motivation.
2: Also, I'd be remiss not to ask you, it is now one year since the tragic death of Masa, meaning the young Iranian woman, uh, under very suspicious circumstances, refused to wear her hijab. So, tell us about what one year means as exactly. you tried to really hold those in power to account on this.
31: Yeah, you know, she was wearing a hijab, but they decided it wasn't hijabi enough, and she was arrested by the so-called morality police. And it's believed she was so severely roughed up that she later died in hospital. Journalists who broke the story are still in jail. The Iranian regime right now, the reports are that it is trying to preemptively tamp down any anniversary protests and the like. So they're apparently, you know, weighing in heavily on the families. Don't talk about it. Don't do anything. Don't, you know, just stay home. They're apparently taking people out of universities, those professors who may have been sort of anti regime. And importantly, though, you know, the president of Iran will be one of those leaders who comes over here to the United Nations, tries to put his case to the world. He's also supporting Russia. And this time last year, he refused to sit down with me because he wouldn't sit down with a woman who, by law, was not required to wear the hijab here in New York. So this year, I do not believe he'll be giving any interviews to women. But the interesting thing is that the Iranian women while they have not overthrown the regime, and they say that wasn't their aim, they are walking around, going to restaurants, and being in public without their hijab. So in a way, they've won part of the battle. In a way, there's so much further to go. Christian, thank you very
2: much. And thank you for being at the table with us this week as we Pleasure. celebrate your 40 oh, gosh. years Oh <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Make sure to watch on CNN, CNN Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. That is this Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only right here. So for the first time in American history, a child of the sitting president has been indicted. What Hunter Biden is now facing and how Americans
3: feel about it. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dropping the F-bomb while staring down another revolt inside his party as the clock ticks down toward a potential government shutdown. Can he get a deal done while well, his leadership role comes under threat? For the first time in U.S. history, a sitting president's child has been indicted. Hunter Bart Biden is charged on three gun-related counts. This comes after his plea deal collapsed last month, right in the middle of his father's re-election campaign. Joining us now is CNN senior day day reporter, Harry Inton. Uh, Harry, I want to start with, where do Americans stand on the Hunter Biden cases and investigations?
33: Yeah, so, you know, take a look here. The DOJ's, DOJ's treatment of Hunter Biden has been, look at this, the clear plurality, say, not tough enough. Just 29% of Americans say fair. Six percent say too tough, but clearly not tough enough. Beats these the fair and the too tough combined. Now, as to Hunter Biden's guilt, do you think Hunter Biden is guilty in the tax non-payment case? Remember, of course, that that case originally had included the gun charges. Look at this. 59% say yes, he is, compared to just two percent. I've never seen a number that low. Two percent say no, he isn't. A very interestingly high number say 38% say don't know, but clearly. The majority of Americans say, yes, he is guilty.
3: You know, Harry, something Bakari, our friend Bakari Sellers said earlier on the show that I think has always stuck with me. Uh, President Biden is a father. It's a son who uh, has addiction uh, problems and has been fighting through it. How do Americans view that? That's a complicated thing that a lot of people can identify with.
33: It is a complicated thing. But, you know, we asked the question, has Joe Biden's actions regarding his son's investigation, have they been appropriate or inappropriate? We got a close matchup here, but inappropriate takes the cake here with 55 percent compared to appropriate at 44 percent. But, of course, just because they view them inappropriately, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change their vote choice come 2020. So changing the chance of voting for Joe Biden after the claims against his son. Here we see clearly 57 percent say no impact. You do see 34 percent say less likely. But the vast majority of those are Republicans. So, look. They see Joe Biden's actions as inappropriate, but the idea that it's going to change their vote for 2020 just doesn't bear out in the numbers. Other things simply matter
3: more. It's, exactly. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting as this all plays out. Harry Anton, you're always interesting, my friend. Same Thank with you, you, my friend. Bobby?
2: He took my line, Mattingly. <laughs> I was going to say he's always interesting. All right. New this morning, in the federal case against former President Trump and his alleged mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, Trump did what... Seems to be a really interesting interview with NBC News, and he said that he did not direct anyone to delete security footage after that footage was subpoenaed, and as he is accused of doing by the prosecutors in this case. Here's Trump.
14: I want to ask you about the case related to Mar-a-Lago. A A new charge suggests you asked a staffer to delete security camera footage so it wouldn't get into the hands of investigators. Did
7: you do that?
17: It's totally
14: false. false. But let me tell you
17: what Would you, testify t- t- testify you testify later. to that under
14: oath?
7: to. I'll testify to you testify to that under oath? It's a fake okay. charge by this deranged lunatic uh, prosecutor who lost in the Supreme Court nine to nothing and he tried to destroy lots of lives. Uh, he's a lunatic. So it's a fake charge. But more importantly, the tapes weren't deleted. In other words, there was nothing done to
2: him. Let's bring in CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, CNN political commentator Earl Lewis. Ellie Honig back with us at the table. Morning, everyone. Um, Well, let's actually start there and then we'll we'll get to Hunter in a moment. That was really interesting what Trump said. I don't know if it's bluster if he would actually testify in, in, in that trial. But you contrast that with four indictments. But now Biden's son, for the first time in American history, has also been indicted, very different charges, but it just is sort of this, can you just put this in context for us? Like, well, listen, once again, never before happened in American never history Never before, moment.
8: never before, right? Look, the, the indictment of, uh, of Hunter Biden is exactly what Donald Trump wanted. And it is all that Donald Trump wanted. If you go back to the first impeachment, if you go back to things that we have heard him say on the record, he was saying he just wanted some rough equivalents. He wants to try and neutralize uh, all of the criminal allegations against him. And now this gives him some kind of equivalence so that he can go out on the campaign trail and say, oh, you're accusing me of wrongdoing? Well, let's talk about the Biden crime family and try to impute uh, to the sitting president something that his son might have done five years ago. So that's really all Donald Trump wanted. It's the politicization of, of, of uh, an act of government, in this case, the indictment of Hunter Biden. And that's all it has ever been. That is why he instructed his followers and supporters in the Republican conference to say something, to start some kind of impeachment. They said that they would do it before they even took power. They, they and, and the point, again, was not to uh, come up with any real information or pursue truth or justice or anything like that, but simply to give Donald Trump a, an important, what he considered an important talking point, so that when he goes on the campaign trail, he can say, everybody's got corruption charges. I've got corruption charges, and so does my opponent, Joe Biden.
3: It will never not be fascinating to me that this was literally what got then-President Trump impeached the first time, uh, doing exactly this on exactly this issue. Natasha, I think what's striking to me when it comes to the impeachment inquiry this week, you you look at this week for President Biden and between the, the, we were talking about this last night and this morning, the, the strike that's now happening right now, the indictment of his son, which is obviously very personal but has political repercussions, the impeachment inquiry, Republicans are nowhere near figuring out how to deal with a potential government shutdown. You had the Ignatius column as well, the David Ignatius column calling right. on him uh, to step aside. All it does is just spin Washington, but more importantly, Democrats who aren't tied to the campaign into an absolute freak out, to be completely candid with you. And it was I was talking with somebody last night, a Democratic donor who said, um, was very, very upset about everything and where things stand. And I said, look, if the impeachment inquiry isn't going to find anything, and so far they don't have direct evidence, what are you all worried about? And they said... Benghazi with Hillary. Mm, right. right? We didn't think there was any wrongdoing that was ever shown, but they just really attacked her with it, utilized it, and that's where the email stuff came up.
32: And that is the power of repeating a message again and again. But what's really promising is the numbers. If you look at public opinion around this, there still is a split about whether Americans think Joe Biden actually did something wrong. And of course, it divides along partisan lines. So AP poll, you're looking at 66% of Republicans who think that. Joe Biden did something related to uh, Hunter Biden's business dealings. Seven percent of Democrats. And there is no actual evidence that Joe Biden had anything to do with Hunter's business dealings just yet. So with everything that is happening, there is a risk that. Uh, a perception builds that this is just an attack, right? That there is nothing uh, legitimate here. And so I I think that can actually work in President Biden's favor. Uh, But the other side of this is is the concern around his age, right? Uh, Although people are making this out to be something about Joe Biden, the American public is concerned about this across the board. And so Joe Biden can always point to his record of achievement. And so the the people who support him in that, I think, will be able to sort of lead on that versus the age as they try to make decisions uh, next
2: year. Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota disagrees that this is not uh, an an issue for the American people. I just want to play what he said yesterday.
14: Numbers don't lie. Uh, I think we have uh, some pundits that are. Uh, I know how people feel. Uh, The numbers reflect that. I know a lot of colleagues feel. Uh, and this is existential, uh, I believe, for democracy. It's
23: saying? almost as
2: if he took a shot at me. He was
23: not he taking knew? a shot at <laughs> Natasha gonna, or Errol. I do Errol. Not
3: view you as a pundit. <laughs> no. No,
2: no, but this isn't new for Dean Phillips, Errol. He's been saying this for a while now, and he says it's existential, and we need to say he's saying Democrats need to say the quiet part out loud.
8: Listen, um, I think we're all going to have to, um, as a sort of political discussion class um, acknowledge that most people are not paying attention to a lot of this and that in that kind of uh, an environment, simply repeating over and over again, Biden crime family, Hunter's laptop, just saying it over and over and over again starts to acquire sort of a political meaning, right? And then we all have to make a decision. Are we going to now, uh, based on the the strategic planting of those kind of of, of propaganda seeds, are we going to now base policy on that? Are we going to build a national election around those issues? I think overall people have enough sense or should have enough sense to, to understand that the issues confronting the country are so much more important than that, that those kind of political cheap tricks cannot be how we frame this discussion for the for the for the nation as we go into a really important election year.
34: Ali, can if I, yeah, yeah, if no, I could please, just pick up please, on that. Yeah.
22: Errol made such an interesting point just earlier when he said, talked about the idea of a rough equivalence between what's happening to Donald Trump in terms of his pending criminal indictments and Joe Biden. I think that's a perfect way to say it because, look, Donald Trump has much bigger problems than Joe Biden has, but you can see these things being built, perhaps bootstrapped, maybe out of something, maybe out of nothing, but Joe Biden's now got a, a, a pending impeachment inquiry He's got his son is indicted. And let's also not, not forget, there's a special counsel still out. Robert Herr, the forgotten special counsel, looking at Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. Now, we've heard nothing right. from Robert Herr's shop. He's been at this now for eight months, which is almost twice the amount of time it took DOJ to investigate and close out the Mike Pence inquiry. So we don't know what's going to come out of that. But Biden does have, I think, a, a much less serious set of problems But enough, perhaps, that someone can say rough equivalency.
32: When people hear about that gun charge, though, like when they actually hear the story about it, I'm thinking of everyday Americans where we've just been talking about the health impact of addiction and drug addiction. Someone having an addiction, getting a gun, they lie on a form, they throw away the gun, they barely have the gun for a long time. Eleven days. How, How does that equate to... Uh, someone overthrowing, trying to overthrow <laughs> democracy, right? Taking classified documents. I mean, it, it it does create some doubt, but when people actually get the details,
2: I wonder how they'll react. I think to you it. make. I don't think it's about comparing them. I think you make an important point about what this gun charge is and how, as Jennifer Rogers said earlier on the program, most people wouldn't be charged for something like this. So, to that point, Ellie, can yeah. you explain to people waking up this morning wondering why the same guy, David Weiss? <laughs> didn't prosecute, didn't indict Hunter Biden for the same thing before, and now he's indicting him now.
22: DOJ has done a very rapid turnabout on Hunter Biden. They walked into a federal courtroom six, seven weeks ago and were ready to get rid of this case for a misdemeanor and dismiss the gun charge, take a misdemeanor tax charge. The deal falls apart. The political pressure builds. David Weiss requests special counsel status. He wants more power, more independence. Merrick Garland grants it. And now they're going full bore at Hunter Biden. They've now indicted him for the gun charge, which carries a 10-year max. He's not going to get anything near 10 years, even if he's convicted. But I also think it's important to note, that gun charge, I am quite confident, is a placeholder because they were about to hit the five-year statute of limitations. They had to get that charge in, essentially, within the next couple weeks. I still do think there's a tax charge coming. We talked about before. Hunter Biden has admitted that he failed to pay over a million dollars in taxes. So I think there's more to come. The question is, does it get beyond the scope of guns and taxes and into something mm-hmm. media? There's been no public evidence yet, but we don't know what DOJ
3: has. All right, guys, Ali, Natasha, Errol, <clears throat> appreciate it as always. Well, thousands of auto workers are on strike this morning after their contracts with the big three automakers expired at midnight. CEO of General Motors joins us next.
2: And in a new piece this morning, NBA legend Kareem Abdul Jabbar asks, is Biden too old to be president? The six-time NBA champ in studio with us ahead. The White House says President Biden will speak today about the UAW strike against all big three automakers. This is the first time in history the union has gone on strike against all three at once. Our Vanessa Urkevich is live in Detroit with the CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra. Good morning, Vanessa.
6: Good morning, Poppy, here at GM headquarters with Mary Barra, who is uh, speaking to us about the latest developments on the strike today. Thank you so much for being here. GM and the union could not come to an agreement
35: before before the midnight deadline. Why is that? Well, um, I think that's a question you probably uh, need to ask the UAW because we have a very compelling uh, offer on the table. Um, I'm very frustrated um, because I I think we had an offer that resonates with our people. It's a historic offer. Uh, Gross wage increases of 20 percent that compound to 21 percent, maintaining world-class health care. There's several aspects as well. But I think one thing that's most important is job security. And, you know, we're in an incredibly exciting time in this industry right now as we make the transformation from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles, and uh, General Motors is well poised. We have a, a pipeline coming. And so when we look at that and we look at how this could um, you know, delay that, It's at a critical juncture. So we have a a, a deal that I think is very, very important. That proposal sits at the table. Our team is ready to be at the table again. They're waiting, and we need to get back. We need the UAW leadership to get back to the table, get these issues resolved so we can get people back to work. The UAW also struck against GM in 2019, so two strikes in four years. What do you think you're getting wrong? Well, I think we uh, each of those are very different, and I think, you know, 19 had its whole set of issues, very different. Um, take a long time to go through all of that. But if you look at uh, where we are right now, we understand the world has changed, and that's why we put a historic offer on the table with the increases. I think our manufacturing team is is the best on the field. The way they managed through the COVID situation and continue to build cars, trucks, and crossover, the way that we managed, and they, uh, you know, moved with us as we went through the semiconductor shortage and still the supply challenges that we see today, they're very resilient. And I, you know. I want to recognize them because our manufacturing team, along with the engineering team, for the last two years has been uh, number one in J.D. power quality. So we have a very talented team. Uh, We've put a historic offer on the table. And so that's why I'm so disappointed and frustrated. The union is demanding,
6: asking for a 40% wage increase over four years. They're asking for that in part because they say CEOs like yourself, uh, leading the big three, are making those kind of pay increases over the course of the last four years. You've seen a 34% pay increase in your salary. You make almost $30 million. Why should your
35: workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting, leading the company? Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit-sharing aspect of it, world-class healthcare, and there's several other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we wanna get back there and get this done. But if you're getting a 34% pay increase over four years and you're offering 20% to employees right now, do you think that's fair? Well, I think when you look at the overall the overall structure and, and the fact that 92% is based on performance, and you look at uh, what we've been doing of sharing in the profitability when the company does well, I think uh, we've got a very compelling offer on the table, and that's the focus I have right now. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about profits, because in 2009, GM filed for bankruptcy,
6: was bailed out by the U.S. government. Workers made concessions to keep their jobs, to keep the company alive why shouldn't workers be entitled to what they gave up 15 years ago especially since gm is making record profits right now
35: well first of all this is a very cyclical business and we've uh, had uh, you know a very strong run i think part of that is because of the demand for the economy and what we've been through with unprecedented with covid and semiconductor uh, challenges but we have to remember we're a cyclical business we also have to remember this is a pivotal point in the auto industry for everyone as we make this, you know, 100 year transformation from uh, internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. We need to make sure we can invest in both to maintain the jobs that we have. And I think if you look at uh, many aspects of the agreement, it is it is uh, getting at the specific issues of, of, some, of the, uh, some of the different challenges in different ways because no compensation system I think anywhere is the same as it was, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So we have to look at where we are. We have to look at the future. And at General Motors, we want to recognize the hard work of our manufacturing employees. We have a historic deal on the table over best, the best economics in over 115 years. And that's what we have on the table. We want to uh, you know, finish the negotiations, problem solve, and get people back to work. I spoke to your counterpart, Jim Farley, CEO of Ford. And he said
6: that if Ford meets all of the demands that the union has, that
35: Ford would go bankrupt. Is that the same case for General Motors? When you look at the original demands, they totaled over $100 billion. Uh, That's more more by quite a factor than we've made over the life of this agreement. And frankly, more than almost double the market cap of the company right now. So that's why we have to have a realistic offer. We want to make sure we reward um, the hardworking men and women of General Motors and the work they do every day. And we think that's what we have on the table. But is that bankruptcy level demands? Well, if you, um, you know, if you're uh, asking for more than the company made, I think that's not a good position.
6: So Sean Fain has obviously made some ambitious demands on on the companies. There's no question about that. Do you believe that
35: Sean Fain is setting his members up for disappointment in the end? Uh, you know, I think that's a question that you should probably talk to Sean Fain. I think our there's many of our employees who really understand the reality of, of the situation i think they'll see this is a record uh, a record agreement when we look at the gross wage increases when we look at where we are in health care when we look at the additional benefits that we've added as a part of this very very strong offer that sits on the table i think they're going to understand that because they also and i i visit a lot of plants i'm in one to two plants every month and you know i've been doing that for years uh so i when i talk to employees and i listen to them They want to know that their facility is getting a new product. And to get a new product, we have to have the money to design, engineer, and install all the tooling and equipment to do that. And so it's important, and I think they understand, you need to do both. They want to make sure General Motors is here for the next 115 years just as much as I do. And I think everybody needs to understand that and get serious, get to the table. We have a strong agreement. Like I said, it's a record agreement. I think we're in a good position to get this done. Just quickly, last question, you spoke to President Biden yesterday. What was that conversation? So I've been speaking to many members of Congress and the administration, and I'm going to continue to give them an update. I'm going to continue to make sure they know we have a strong offer. We're negotiating in good faith, and we have since uh, July 18th when the negotiation started. We've been given over a thousand demands, and we have to talk about each and every one of those. So we're doing the work. We want to get people back to work. We, uh, again, I think we have the best manufacturing team on the field right now, uh, and we're at an exciting uh, juncture. We need to get people back to work so we can maintain our GM momentum and win and keep um, our position of selling more vehicles in this country than anyone else. And we think we can grow with the EV portfolio we have on top of our internal combustion engine. So, you know, we're gonna keep keeping everybody up to speed, but the most important is to get the UAW leadership back to the table so we can get this resolved. Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors, thank you for your time. Phil Poppy, back to you.
3: Yeah, it was a really important conversation, interview from Vanessa at a very critical moment uh, with those strikes having begun. We do expect to hear from President Biden, who Vanessa was just asking about, uh, in the hours ahead. Yeah, for sure.
2: Vanessa, thank you very much for bringing us that. In a new piece, NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar asks, is Biden too old to be president, the six-time NBA champion here at the table with us?
3: The question of age is a big topic in the 2024 race for president. President Biden is 80. Former President Trump is 77. And a new CNN poll shows roughly three-quarters of Americans say they're seriously concerned Biden's age might negatively affect his current level of physical and mental competence. An NBA legend, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is tackling the question directly in a new piece out this morning asking, is Biden too old to be president? He writes, in part, Biden may drive the car more slowly and with the blinker always on, but at least it, he's driving in the right direction. I didn't mean that in a literal sense. Uh, joining us now is the best-selling author, philanthropist in the NBA Hall of Famer, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We should note that he endorsed President Biden's 2020 run. And I actually, I found... Uh, What we just read is such a a good window into the piece itself. I've always enjoyed your writing. But Poppy was just asking you, and I'm going to steal it from her, because I think you have a good answer on this, an interesting answer. Why did you decide to write this, given the fact that this seems to be what everybody is talking about in political circles?
34: Well, I I think that uh, people have a distorted uh, appreciation of, of what's going on. I mean, they're only three years apart, 77 to 80. There's only three years difference there. So uh, it's not about age. It's about how can you uh, lead, all right? And the best way to lead is to surround yourself with capable people that can advise and uh, execute your ideas. And I I think Biden has done an excellent job of that. And uh, I think that uh, we should uh, acknowledge that and uh, respect that.
2: Do you think the Biden administration and the team around him have done an excellent job at quelling the very real concerns of democratic voters though about these things
34: uh, I think in practical terms he has because uh look at the things that he's done you know uh, uh, with the economy uh jobs etc he's he's done an, a great job but uh, people are still caught up in numbers you know 80 as 80 as opposed to uh, 77. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Um, President Biden has surrounded himself with capable people who can execute his thoughts. The people around uh, Trump, uh, I don't know. They, they haven't seemed to have uh, brought home the bacon very often.
3: You, You note in your piece, that you'd prefer younger candidates, right? But you're, this is kind of what's on the table right now. These are the options, and right. therefore this is kind of where you stand. And you echo to some degree what, Biden always, what President Biden always says, which is, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, which is essentially what you're framing here is.
34: Exactly. Yeah, uh, there's only three years difference. Uh, and Biden's experience and uh, the people that he has advising him have uh, have made a difference. Trump has not... If you ask uh, the Trump supporters what he has accomplished, they're at a loss. But so why, from the president's
3: perspective, from the president's team, does that not seem to resonate? Like The disconnect, if that's the case,
34: is so dramatic at this moment. Well, I, I just think it's um, just the way that people deal with what they think are, you know, really pertinent facts that aren't really pertinent facts. I keep saying that there's only three years difference, but uh, for a lot of people, um, all right, let's say there are two items for sale. One is $10, one is 9 dollars okay? M- most people would say, well, geez, the um, the one that's uh, nine ninety five that's 95 uh, that's a lot less expensive than the one that's $10, When actually is Five cents is uh, not much of a of a big swing, but uh, it's 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 the way that people observe things and how they see them in their minds. Sometimes they uh, just uh, overreact <laughs> to uh, what they think is a, is something that that that's pertinent when it isn't.
2: Yeah, we all know you're a great record in the NBA, 20 years. You led your teams to six championships. And toward the end of your career, you passed the torch, right, to great players, Magic Johnson, James the others. As you think about the Democratic Party moving forward, I want to look beyond Biden in 2024. Do you feel confident that they're set up to pass that torch appropriately to the people who will be the next generation of leaders in the party?
34: I think so, because uh, they're constantly trying to get those parties those people, excuse me, those people involved in uh, what's going on right now, so that they can have the experience and uh have an idea of, of what's going on and how to cope as they enter you know the uh the service of the of the nation that's uh that to me is is a good way to uh keep it uh, efficient and keep it uh, rolling along in, in a way that will uh, benefit the majority of Americans because it, it doesn't always work out that way, as, as we all know. Um, a little bit of time left. Uh, we are actually out
3: of time, so we're going to keep talking about this. <laughs> At the table. <laughs> At the table. Uh, it's uh, really great to see you, uh, great to meet you, but also nice uh, your writing has, has struck me for a long time. This is a really interesting piece that people should go read. Kareem Biljabar. thanks so much.
34: This is a pleasure.
3: Nice talking with you. Me too. And CNN News Central starts right after this break. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll be back here on Monday.